Give me a go, no go for launch. Just when you think you're out, they pull you back in. I was gonna say something that was not true. I, I don't know why we do these. Let's make film history. We are go for launch. Welcome back, everybody, to the Almost Sideways podcast. We are so glad you are joining us for episode 148. Uh, we're recording this on Sunday, October 17th, 2021, at 2 p.m. Pacific time. I'm your host, Terry Plucknett. Joining me, Todd Plucknett, Zach Saltz. Uh, we're in the middle of an NFL Sunday, ahead of the, the Seahawks playing tonight against the Steelers, the start of the Geno Smith era. Todd, are, are you... Uh, are are you predicting, you know, a, a resurgence in Geno Smith mania, or are we going to look like embarrassing tonight? I mean, I don't think we'll be embarrassed. We haven't been embarrassed in primetime in a long time, but we haven't been without Russell Wilson in a long time. Well, true, but I mean, it is, <laughs> the Steelers aren't great either. But Geno hasn't started a game in like four years. I'm not sure. What, I'm not sure what we're, what we're going to do. The last time Russell Wilson didn't start for the Seahawks, margin call came out. <laughs> yeah. and That's the, a long the, time ago. And our quarterback that started that last game is no longer alive. That's oh, literally. That really? R.I.P. T-Jack. Wow. Wait, Tavares Jackson is dead? Yeah, he died a couple years ago. Oh, that's, that's horrible. He, he has a Super Bowl. He had a Super Bowl ring. He did. He did. Have you noticed Geno Smith has taken over his tradition of being the overtime uh, coin flip caller? Yeah, but the last time we were in overtime, he didn't have a backwards hat, and we missed, and we didn't get the coin toss. Oh, <laughs> whatever happened to Seneca Wallace? Maybe he could start for you guys. He was fun. He was fun. He went off and started for the Browns for a little while, which you know ended his career because that's what happens when you start at quarterback for the Browns. Yeah, but. Yeah, we'll see how it goes. You'll all know how it how it went once uh by the time this comes out. I so. mean, hey, I think I think Geno Smith is an upgrade over the co the ghost of uh, Ben Roethlisberger. He's he's the quarterback I'd rather have. All right, so so on to the other bit of sports uh sports Awkward news here. Segue. Yeah, yeah. Can you believe that the Seahawks and Steelers was once a Super Bowl? God, I, I, this is a two teams I hate the most. Speaking of teams you hate, who uh, who's going to make the World Series, the Red Sox or the Astros? You mean the cheaters or the unvaccinated semi-cheaters? <laughs> <laughs> pretty much, pretty much. I don't know. I think if it's Braves, Red Sox, I, I, I think Todd and I need to do a deep dive because those are, are allegedly two of our favorite teams. That could be fun. I, I saw Todd was wearing his Braves shirt there. I'd, I'd be for that. Braves, Red Sox. It'd, be the, be great... it'd probably be the first baseball either one of us have watched in about in, uh, 10 years. Yeah, well, I mean, the Braves and the Astros have a long history of the playoffs, and I don't think the Braves have ever lost a game to them. <laughs> like, they swept <laughs> them like four straight years in the playoffs, back when it was the National League. I thought when the Astros got to that stupid World Series with Roger Clemens, they beat the Braves. I mean, I, I, that... I meant the Astros. The, the Braves and Astros. Like, the Braves always destroyed the Astros in the playoffs. Not the Red Sox. Yeah, yeah, that's that's what I'm saying. The, uh, the year that the the, the Clemens Astros beat the Braves, unless I'm crazy, I, don't I think, just did they ever do that? Yeah, I think they did. I think that would they had like a what 90, an 05? Yeah, like a, 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 a it was the year that Ethan Hawke took uh, his kids to the game, 
and he was talking about what a great 41-year-old pitcher looks like. You know, obviously one that cheated, but still. This is getting off track, man. Why, it really why, is. why are we starting with baseball? That's that's no good. It's playoff baseball time. Why don't we talk about the Huskers and how, how great they looked yesterday? Moving on to what we've been <laughs> drinking. <laughs> yeah, we're not we're not talking about that. We're we're just avoiding it completely. At least we right. didn't get shut out at home to Texas Tech, although technically well we, we put up garbage that, touchdowns. That's expected from from kansas anyway zach what what's in that lovely glass you've been uh you've been sipping out of there it is called a tempranillo patron clementi uh crianza sorry so the camera can see uh it is a spanish wine that was under eight dollars and looked really good and it is really good it the pronunciation was not really good (laughs) <laughs> yeah, I was thinking Roger Clemens, I think, but, but it's actually Crianza is the pronunciation. Awesome. Awesome. Todd? Uh, I have a cocktail that I created myself. It is grape brandy with sweet vermouth. And it is like a, it is such a, just a really subtle drinkable cocktail. And I'm really proud of myself. Nice. I think by the end of this podcast, we need to come up with a name for it. A, okay. It's a, it's a grape grape brandy with sweet vermouth. Yeah. Sweet vermouth has a really interesting flavor. It's almost like you're adding Dr. Pepper to something without like the the fizz. And so putting it with a grape brandy is a really interesting flavor and it just it's not too sweet. It's just really subtle and good. Mm. It's an interesting nice. perspective. How pronounced yeah. is the grape? I mean, you could taste the grape, but it's not like it doesn't taste like grape flavor, which is disgusting, you know. Because I was gonna say we needed to like name name it like a spiked grape knee high in honor of a uh, radar for mash. But we could, I mean, we could do that. But I mean, it's, yeah, could. definitely not grape soda. R.I.P. Gary Bugoff. Bergoff. He's, Bergoff. He's still alive, I think. Is he? I, he he is a, a resident of Eugene, Oregon. Oh, really? I did not yes. know that, but I think he's still I think he's still kicking. He did RV commercials growing up. <laughs> All right. Well, I went to the brewery today. Shout out to Ridgewalker because I was a genius and didn't realize that their hours changed and they open at noon now instead of 11. So I felt really stupid showing up at 1135 and their doors were locked. And then an employee was walking by and I was like, hey, you don't open for a half hour, but I just want to fill a growler. And he goes, oh, that's easy. Come on in. And so uh, shout out to them for for let me let me fill up. Anyways, this is uh, a a new kind of new beer they have. This is called Just Another Day Juicy IPA. And uh, it is actually an old um, an old recipe of their uh, hazy IPA that they make. And then they change the recipe, but they still had some kegs of the original laying around. And so they just renamed it and tapped it and. It's good stuff. It's good stuff. I actually kind of like this one over the new recipe. That's why I got it. So there you go. Did you say they tapped it? Yeah, you tap a keg. Okay. You can tap other things too, but. (laughs) They had a keg and they tapped it. That's, I mean, I see where you're going there, but. Burgess Meredith would approve. That's all I'll say. (laughs) That guy, that kid in Forty Year Old Virgin. No, you. Oh, you tapped that. No, Tom, you went to Temple. 
Seth, you have a small penis. <laughs> it wasn't Seth. Wasn't it, it was, was it Seth? Was that his name? Was I thought it was Seth? I have to look I this up. Wrong. I just said Tommy. I thought it it's was not Tommy. Tommy. It's not. Tom, it's a Jewish name. I thought it was Seth. Maybe it's Seth. I guess I never put that together. All right. What are we watching? What have we watched? Uh, we're going to start with Zach. All right. So uh, I actually just got home, which is why I'm a little late today from the movie I watched. I watched uh, Bergman Island. The, Ooh. Uh, new Mia movie. Wasikowska. Um, yeah, yes. Uh, so Terry's resurrection <laughs> of the Mia Wasikowska career and uh, the catalyst for it is Bergman Island. Um, she's not the star of the movie. Uh, the star of the movie is the uh, the great Vicky Creeps, who Todd really loved in Phantom Thread, but didn't love so much in Old. Um, she is the star of this movie, and she plays Chris. And in, at the beginning of the movie, she is married to uh, Tony, who's played by Tim Roth. And they are a married uh, filmmaking couple. Um, they have a child together. And at the beginning of the movie, they are landing in Faro, which is an island off Sweden, which is where the great Swedish director Igmar Bergman lived. Now, let me tell you, uh, they the idea that um, Bergman Island would exist is pretty crazy because like Bergman to, for, for most uh, American audiences is a very, you know, like uh, obscure, esoteric art house director. But in Sweden, he is revered as a god. And so on this island, it's like the Jurassic Park of film director islands. They have literally a Bergman tour that they go on, a Bergman safari with a bus. It's kind of like the, the Seinfeld episode with the real Peterman reality tour. Um, and uh, Vicky Creeps and Tim Roth actually stay in Bergman's house. And if you watch some of the Bergman uh, Criterion movies, um, you can actually tell that, that Mio Hanson Love actually shot this on Bergman's real estate. So there's a real sense of authenticity to it. Anyway, uh, the movie is very meandering. It doesn't even really have much of a plot. It's just these two characters who are kind of rehashing their marriage a little bit, a la Before Midnight, but not really that dramatic. Um, they don't really have any major fights or anything like that, but they're kind of at a standstill in their marriage, uh, both in terms of their marriage and creatively. Uh, Vicky Creeps is trying to uh, finish a screenplay, and the movie does this kind of odd nocturnal animals type thing where it does a movie inside a movie, which is where the Mia Wasikowska character comes in. She plays uh, Vicky Creeps' main character in her movie that she's trying to finish the screenplay for. Um, it all sounds more interesting than it actually is. I found this movie very ponderous and meandering. I like the little references here and there to Bergman, but I really wonder how many people will actually pick up on that. I don't know. I like Mia Hansen Love as a director. Goodbye First Love is one of my favorite movies of the 2000s, but this was sort of a disappointment. It was very slow, meandering, and even the ghost of Ingram Bergman would probably say it's not a, uh, a miserable or existential enough movie. So, I don't know. Two stars. If, I, if this was on Netflix, I probably would have paused it, but uh, kind of a disappointment. All right. All right. I've not seen that one yet. But I yeah. didn't know it was coming out this weekend. It's That's like good. one of the most unmarketable movies you could possibly imagine. Pretty so, much. <laughs> yeah. I, I want to see the movie, uh, you know, um, maybe Lars von Trier Island. That sounds a lot more fun. <laughs> a lot more All right. I'll go next. So my uh, Oscar anniversary watch this week, going back 20 years to 2001, possibly... One of my biggest blind spots coming into this year that I hadn't seen yet. It was nominated for five Oscars. Osmosis Jones. Only, of course. I'd actually saw that in high school. Um, only one of them was above the line. It was a major category. Black Hawk Down? 
there were three tech categories and then foreign. Oh. Amelie. 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 Yep. I had never seen Amelie until this week. So let's talk about Amelie. Amelie is uh, a a brilliant French film. Uh, It was on Adam's top 100 of all time, even. Um, And uh, and I I asked... (laughs) <laughs> it was I watched this with my wife. I watched this with my wife, and and uh, and I told her that, and she goes, "Wait, where where does Zach have it?" I said, "It's not in his top 100." She goes, "How does Adam have a French film in his top 100 that Zach doesn't?" And my response was, "Because it was popular." So mm-hmm. that I mean, that's a good call. Yeah, it's a good call. Anyways, it was directed by Jean Pierre Junet, and it stars Audrey Tutu as Amelie, this precocious, naive girl. Uh, who's got a lot of quirks to her and she decides to kind of uh, go on this like tour of her town and helping people out and, and doing all these really random acts. And it eventually ends up with her falling in love with this guy who fixes phone booths or not phone booths, photo booths. Uh, It is just quirky and charming and unlike, anything else it's like uh it's like if wes anderson made a french movie it would be amelie that's kind of what i felt like the entire time is it felt like a wes anderson movie but in french um by the way we i i I could be excused from it because i hadn't seen it yet but two weeks ago when we did the mount rushmore of a third person narration i'm surprised neither of you mentioned amelie because it would have been a great candidate for this um so would have like any wes anderson movie now i think about it um, but uh, it, it it's a beautiful film. It's a charming film. Audrey Tutu is amazing in it. Uh, I'm giving it three and a half stars. It's a it's a solid solid movie. Um, and uh, yeah, I see what all the hype is about. I don't know about top hundred of all time, Adam, but uh, but I can see it being an Adam movie and him really getting into it. And I bet if I watched it one or two more times, it might be up there for me too. So. The movie's really high on IMDb, if I remember right, too, right? It is, yeah. Hold on, I just had it here. It is number 120 on IMDb's Top 250. I think it's the movie for, you know, middle-brow white people in America who say they want to watch a French movie, and that's the one they watch. And it feels like a Wes Anderson movie. It does. It's a very accessible <laughs> movie. It is. It, 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 and I agree. It has its charms. I haven't seen it since it came out in theaters. I'd want to. I would want to rewatch it. But it does a lot of like sort of subjective. Like you see what she's thinking a little bit. Like I remember a part where she like turns into a splash of water, for example. It feels very like Ally McBeal in a way. Um, mm. But Audrey Tatao, This was the movie that launched her stardom, and she was like the big thing for a few years in the early two thousands. And uh, yeah, I, I would definitely and say that she it did made Da Vinci some- Code. That well, that's that, well, that will kill anyone's <laughs> career. Just ask Ron Howard. Uh, well, uh, it's it's a charming movie though. I I remember thoroughly enjoying it when I saw it, but alas, it is uh, too popular. Exactly, exactly. People liked it, so Zach couldn't mm-hmm. couldn't declare it as a masterpiece. There we yeah, go. she. Her, if you want to see a great Audrey Tatao movie, see a movie called He Loves Me, He Loves Me Not, which came out a few years later. Kind of has a similar vibe to Amelie, at least at the start, but then it turns really deranged and sadistic. Great movie. All right. All right. Well, there we go. That's what I watched. Todd, what do you got? Uh, so I saw the new Halloween movie, Halloween Kills. Yeah, there we go. By David Gordon Green. 
it's currently out in theaters and also on Peacock randomly. Um, the movie picks up where the last one left off, sort of. There's like a really awesome flashback before that where everyone's favorite horror villain, Michael Myers, gets caught in 1978. And like everyone knows the severity of Michael. They want to see him dead. But Loomis, who's like the main guy on the case, like can't actually kill him because Michael Myers didn't technically kill at that moment. And it's sort of like this really sad moment where he realizes that like the 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 legend of Michael Myers is going to live on for a while longer. Uh, and in that flashback, we have Thomas Mann and friend of the podcast, Jim Cummings, are like the cops <laughs> that are on his trail. And, he has to play be a cop. Yeah, of course. And uh, and uh, my, uh, Thomas Mann is actually playing the younger version of Hawkins, which is the, the Will Patton ver- uh, character in the present day. And so after that whole thing where they catch him, it goes back to where you see what you see in the trailer, which is Michael is in a house that's burning down that Laurie Strode. Um, like, you know, basically torched. Uh, Laurie Strode is still Jamie Lee Curtis. Uh, and But she's being rushed to the hospital, and she sees the firefighters going to the house, and she's like, let him burn! But, I mean, it's obviously inevitable that he's going to escape. Judy Greer is back as Laurie's daughter, and Andy Matichak as the granddaughter. It's They're a really seriously badass trio. And uh, then it sort of, like, devolves <laughs> into a normal Halloween movie, which is I'm sort of okay with. Uh, it's a little jump scarier than the, uh, the last one. It's a lot gorier, and it builds... It suspends more off of what happened before rather than just having like really good staging and ingenious ideas, the things that made the 2018 Halloween the best horror movie of the last 20 years and maybe the best movie of 2018. But Anthony Michael Hall is also in this randomly and it's pretty, he's like kind of unexpectedly ruthless. He's like a guy who's trying to rally everyone to fight against uh, Michael and uh, save their community from the terror that he brings. It, it, even like the most insignificant characters are still haunted by him. His reputation is sort of like Candyman meets like Kaiser Sose. He's like a spook story, but he's also like the shadow that lingers around and just like really terrorizes the town. And, but Michael is kind of pissed in this movie. Like he's not just out for like havoc on everybody. Instead of being this like really slow, unknowable boogeyman, he's like, I don't know. He, he just is like out for destruction. And he, he, but he's a compelling villain mostly because he is always in the shadows, but Seeing more of him makes him a little bit less scary. He's just like a monster. Now, I mean, I would say leave it up a little bit more to the imagination, but I, I'm i not going to argue because it, the movie goes in weird directions, but it's still pretty well directed because there's so much talent involved in this. And I mean, it, it's just not the kind of ride that I was expecting based on the first one. Um, there's some like really memorable scenes, some like really awesome kills too, but, but it's so brutal. And there's so, it's like really horror sequel where it, like, can't live up to the best of the franchise, because Michael is, like, supernaturally strong and indestructible in this movie. He's, he's, like, almost not even human anymore. But it's still more interesting than most horror movies out now, just because Michael can't go away. His contemporaries, like Freddy and Jason, they're outdated. But Michael is not going anywhere ever. Um, and there's, like, a pretty blatant, like, uprising that happens, where they're, like, trying to revolt against, like, the incompetent police who are trying to, uh, have been trying to take out Michael forever, and, like, also uprising against the killers are just clearly relevant. This was shot before the events of last year and, and everything. And like, but I, they saw this coming somehow, just like the last one was sort of a commentary on like trauma and like telling your own story before like the me too fad thing that they're just a really talented group of writers like Danny McBride and Dave Gordon Green, that whole crew. They're really good. Uh, there's some recognizable faces in this. If you're like a degenerate like me who watches way too much shit, like the henchman flattened by a steamroller in Austin Powers is like this, like, <laughs> asshole lover of the like the main welding guy in el camino like i, I don't know like stuff like that's pretty great it, it, it's a really deep cast will Patton is awesome in this his backstory makes a whole lot more sense now 
I, but I have a hard time finding out or figuring out what they were doing with Jamie Lee Curtis because she's not in as much as much of this movie. It's like they're trying to pass the load or the, the Strode uh, legacy onto the granddaughter, which would be kind of cool. But Lori's what always made the franchise tick for me. It, I, I mean, it's too much about Michael in this and not about Lori, but may, maybe Lori's going away at some point. Uh, it's got kind of a banger of an ending. I can't wait for Halloween ends. It's going to be awesome whenever that gets, whenever it comes out. I think it's supposed to be next year. But it, it's sort of to me like the land of the dead of the Halloween franchise because it's like not exactly what you'd expect, but it's still satisfying. It's more modern and absolutely more brutal than what's come before it. And uh, I, I still like it, and I'm giving it three stars. All right. Now, I have not seen any of the Halloween movies, but I will say one of the best things that popped up on the internet this week was the picture of Jamie Lee Curtis going to the costume party dresses Janet Leaf from Psycho. That is pretty awesome. Which is her mother. Have you seen that, Todd? No. You should look it up. Yeah, she went to the the costume party premiere of Halloween Kills dressed as her mother. It's yeah. pretty great. I have a few comments about Todd's review. First of all, whenever you mention Land of the Land of the Dead, I think Will Ferrell and dinosaurs. So clearly, I'm in the wrong. <laughs> That's Land of the boat. Lost. Um, I I love anytime a movie has a banger of an ending. That's thumbs up for me. The steamroller guy from Austin Powers. I wow. I did not know he was still alive. That's great to hear that he's thriving in some capacity. <laughs> Isn't that the Mad TV guy? I get. Wasn't he like Stewart on Mad TV? Wow, if that's the same guy, then I don't know. I, I mean, think I guess it is. the eyes, I could see it in the eyes, yeah. I think it is. My real question is, Todd, where does Halloween 2018 rank on your all-decade list? It, it's got to be in the top 20, even if you don't want to admit it, right? Well, it wasn't officially on my list, but I, I don't know. I haven't updated my 2018 list. It kind of is my number one of 2018, but I have the House of Jack Bolt ranked number one, so which I don't think was on my, maybe that was my only 2018 movie on my top 25 of the decade. I don't know. Halloween 2018 is amazing, though. All right. All right. So there we go. That's what we've been watching. Now let's get into our featured review. And for that, we're going to the other big release of the weekend. And that was only in theaters. The return to the writing room for Matt Damon and Ben Affleck. The first time since Goodwill Hunting, it is the last duel. A most unspeakable charge has been brought against you. Jacques Legree entered our home. He attacked me. The accusation is false. I am telling the truth. The truth does not matter. There is only the power of men. Uh, directed by Ridley Scott. Like I said, written by Matt Damon, Ben Affleck, and Nicole Holofcener. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and start on this one. So this is a medieval movie. takes place in the 1300s, uh, starring Matt and Ben and Adam Driver and Jodie Comer. Uh, Matt Damon plays Sir Jean de Carouge, uh, and uh, Jodie Comer plays his wife, uh, Lady Marguerite. Adam Driver plays Jacques Legree, uh, a friend that kind of turns into a rival at times as uh, as Jacques starts to work his way up and Jean seems to be stuck where he's at. And uh, then Ben Affleck plays Pierre, uh, who is the Lord of the, of the region, the cousin to the King in France. This is based on a true story. 
And what it all really comes down to is um, Jodie Comer's character, Lady Marguerite, claims that she has been raped by uh, Jacques Legree. And uh, this is kind of the crux of the entire movie. And uh, and what really happened, what was um, who said who's saying what and uh, and how it all plays out in a duel to the death at the end between uh, Jean and Jacques. Uh, it's told in three acts and it tell, goes through the entire story. First, from the husband's point of view, Matt Damon's character, Jean de Carouge, then from Adam Driver's point of view, Jacques Legree, and then from Jodie Comer's view, uh, Lady Marguerite. Uh, and, uh, and so it's, it, what's interesting about it is it starts off and you feel like Matt Damon is kind of this, this kind of upstanding guy who the world is out to get and there's all the luck falls against him. And then as everything else plays out, you realize, no, he just is kind of sucks. And then, uh, you get Adam driver's character who is kind of trying to be a friend, but also just kind of sucks at the same time. And then you get really what really happens and it even it points it out the truth uh, when Lady Marguerite's uh, part comes around. You're supposed to be, I think, rooting for one particular side at the end. I kind of wanted them both to lose in the final duel because they both are kind of crappy people. Um, and th- this movie, I felt it had a lot of issues with it. The writing had some had some problems or maybe it was more the editing. It felt like each part, as it goes through telling the different points of view, it felt like highlights of a good story instead of an actual good story being told uh, because it jumped around a lot. And you kind of think, oh, maybe some of these gaps will be filled in with the later points of view. And some were, but some weren't. Uh, There were some scenes where I'm like, oh, that'll be an interesting scene to see from the other person's point of view. And then they completely skip over it. Uh, so I thought that was kind of a, a little bit of a mess, how it was structured and it never felt like a coherent story start to finish. Um, having the different writers like Matt and Ben, um, it, it said Matt and Ben wrote the, the male dialogue and Nicole Hoff center was brought in to write the female dialogue. It was way too obvious that there was this dichotomy in the writing styles, uh, from, from the first two thirds of the movie and the last third of the movie. And, uh, and it didn't quite fit. Uh, speaking of not fitting Matt Damon and Ben Affleck kind of don't fit their accents. If they, if there were any are in and out, same with Adam driver, he kind of felt lost at times and what he was supposed to be trying to portray. Um, Ben Affleck was just horribly, horribly miscast. And 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 his dialogue was the worst of all. I don't know what he was trying to pull off. Um, Matt Damon was trying to give a good performance, but he he like had this look of like if you had asked Matt Damon to look like a douchebag for an entire movie, this is what he'd look like. I mean, he had just this look to him where he like puckered up his lips and tried to make his lips look like a sphincter the entire movie and it was distracting (laughs) um so you had horrible performances there and what the sad part is it's all overshadowing a brilliant performance by jodie comer uh who is really having quite a year between this and then she was amazing in free guy as well um it's 
it's kind of like i said the writing is weird the accents are weird the acting is all over the place um jody comer's great it's poorly put together because it never really tells a full story i feel i'm giving it two stars and the majority of that is it is a compelling story uh that you know or that there is a compelling story there then jody comer is at the heart of it and gives a great performance um you know where it's going too that's the other thing it, it was like trying to set up this big reveal of here's what actually happened and you're going into it like i know what already happened you could save the last hour of this movie we don't need to see it everyone knows the real story by just how you're setting it up you don't need to bludgeon us over the head with what actually happened but they did they did so two stars it's a mess but there's there are some redeemable qualities to it I just wish there were a lot more. I, w- I had high hopes. I had high hopes for this one. Anyways, that's what I think. Let's go to Todd next. I mean, I agree with a lot of what you said. I I think the movie, kind of the way it's set up, is, feels like a play. Like, it, it isn't as much of a battle picture as I thought it was going to be. The characters just kind of, like, sit around and talk about, like, their money and their servants and their land and their pride a lot, which is interesting and I also think is also a problem because I think the first 45 minutes are really, really boring. But I, I, and like you said, Damon, he's taking himself way too seriously in this. Like, I, I don't, I mean, the makeup was not great, but he was, he was way over the top. Uh, yeah, Ben Affleck's accent just goes in and out, but he has the really good lines and the funniest moments, but uh, he didn't belong in the movie. I, I really like the king, but I think if you expanded on his character anymore, he would have been like Tom Hulse in Amadeus. He would have just been like this giggling, like, <laughs> lunatic, which he kind of was anyway. Uh, Adam Driver, like, I, he is basically just being Adam Driver, but he also looks like Douglas Fairbanks or like Peter Sellers or something. He he like disappears out of this era, and I don't know what he's doing, but I don't think he was in that era either. But Jodie Comer is clearly the star. Like I I mean I didn't know that she had that gear in her arsenal, but she is astonishing. I think she deserved an Oscar nomination. Even her like blank stares like have so much expression in them. Like I can't imagine another actress doing it quite like that. The action scenes I think are kind of indecipherable. There's too many cuts, and there's no like larger scope i don't really know what was going on for most of them i don't i don't think ridley scott was the right director for this he's 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 played around in this genre a lot but he's too like pretentious and bullheaded to actually do this right i think it deserves someone more like a a tony gilroy or something that could have handled the dialogue better and made it more compelling that way but i think the movie thinks that it's really being clever from telling the the movie from multiple perspectives but i'm pretty sure affleck just got that from gone girl or something but it's like has no subtlety at all. Like Terry, you were saying, it was like it it just beats you over the head with it, which is it, it's basically an Oliver Stone movie. But I and and but once you get to the the third act, which it could have been the whole movie, that was the most impactful one, just because it was the the most well written and the one that wasn't by Affleck and Damon. But I did I did like the kind of callbacks to Goodwill Hunting. Like they mentioned Helen of Troy again, and and like they they see like, <laughs> Helen of Troy. She could have been Helen of Troy. <laughs> And uh, Matt Damon just like beats somebody senseless in with the exact same shot of him as they do when he beats a guy in the courtyard in Good Will Hunting. But I, I mean, I don't know the the story they're telling is 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 uh, is relevant and powerful. But I mean, it's a different world. Like having like the duel be the way to settle a court issue is like ending a soccer game with a penalty kicks. I mean, we still do that. Never mind. Uh, I don't know. <laughs> This genre is definitely not my thing, but I mean, I think it's good enough and I'm giving it two and a half stars, but it's sort of like teetering on two stars or two and a half. 
All right, Zach, how about you? All right, well, listen, I mean, first of all, uh, is that like a critique of FIFA or something? Like, you don't like penalty <laughs> kicks? I think, I think they're pretty a awesome, way to, Terrible way to end the, end the game. <laughs> so, going back to Terry's criticism that they the storylines never really connect or never really build upon each other, I kind of feel like that's the point. Um, I was fascinated by the omissions in the different perspectives um, because I think it emphasizes what the characters prioritize in Matt Damon's story. He is clearly, you know, someone who is very driven by the military campaigns, which are a bit tough to follow. I agree with Todd that the, the first 45 minutes of this movie are a bit of a slog, but that's the perspective that the characters have. And I appreciate a fil filmmaker and screenwriters that are willing to indulge in perspectives that are not necessarily reliable you know, the Adam Driver story is all about someone who is uh, slimy and trying to get ahead and completely unaware of his surroundings and the impact that he has on people um, and his toxicity, quite, quite frankly, and his, his parasitic nature to the Ben Affleck character. <laughs> I think you guys are being way too hard on this movie. I really enjoyed this movie. I thought it from, yeah, it's a Rashomon type story. Okay, fine. It maybe thinks it's clever. But, you know, it's drawing on something that's really interesting. It lures you in with this idea that the movie is going to be about a great final duel, the final sanctioned duel in the history of France during the Hundred Years' War. But really, it's about women's stories that get overlooked throughout history. I agree with Todd that the, the Jodie Comer uh, perspective is the most interesting. But I think it's necessary to present those first two perspectives to show how historical records have completely marginalized uh, women like uh, Marguerite. Um, and to show that history doesn't really value uh, things like how a woman had to, you know, control how sometimes women had to deal with issues like um, agriculture, for example, on the field that she has. You know, when she gives the instructions, let's use the horse to maybe um, uh, accelerate some of our, our the, some some of the, the, the land ownership and the, the farming machinery. I, I thought that stuff was really interesting. It did feel like it was out of a different movie, which is precisely the purpose of that. Um, you know, too often we get this kind of bombastic, you know, uh, fighting and chivalry. And when the reality was, you know, for a lot of these people, particularly women, you know, this was an agrarian society back then and they didn't have a lot of rights. Even the women who supposedly had rights, the landowning women like Marguerite in this movie are really kind of subjected to, uh, you know, the patriarchal society. I think this is a fascinating movie, uh, really interesting, really daring in a lot of ways. Where I have a problem with the movie is the fact that the last 15 minutes are Ridley Scott gone gone wild, right? This is like right out of Gladiator. And, you know, I feel like the, uh, the structure of the movie has built it up to so that audiences know that the first two perspectives are, you know, wildly inaccurate. So why does the duel even matter? Why indulge in that kind of machismo of, you know, the, the the fighting and the bloodshed and the really kind of gratuitous violence, which, you know, I don't object to gratuitous violence. What I just don't like is that it just doesn't match what at that point in the story we, we want to see, which is Jodie Comer's perspective. So um, were it not for the last 15 minutes, I would really, really like this movie. I thought the last I, I wish the movie had ended 30 seconds before it actually did. I'm giving it at three stars. I agree with some of your guys' criticisms overall, but I think I'm gl I'm glad that this movie was made more than it wasn't made. I feel like it's trying to do a Mad Max Fury Road thing, which is draw in audiences with the idea that this is going to be some kind of fantastic gladiator-esque movie when it's really looking at how women have sub been subjugated historically. And uh, I think that's a really important message to convey. Well, I know, but that that's true. But it is done with such lack of subtlety. 
Like, I mean, if that was what the movie was about, but it, it was in within a larger scope, that's one thing. But like this, like it clearly is about that. But even like Terry said, the title card goes to the truth. It's like, okay, we know exactly what you're doing. Like I, this, I mean, it's it's Oliver Stone. That's what this movie becomes. How many? Still, how after many that, other? It still was the best part. How many other movies can you think of that show this period of time that also depict the grievous violations of women's rights? I can't think of any. I think this is a really necessary movie now. So yeah, certainly for the Me Too movement, but I think overall it's just an important story that has been completely. Um, you know, ignored throughout history and throughout filmmaking. Uh, I really uh, applaud the filmmakers for having the audacity to show not just Jodie Comer's perspective, but how the male perspective is completely warped and disillusioned. And I think you, you have a point there. And the last part is the best part. But I think the last part is overshadowed by the fact that the first two parts are so poorly done. Like, yeah, they're, I, they're, that's on purpose. It, I, I it's on purpose to make a bad they're, movie they're bad yeah we're, we're, I gonna, think we're so. gonna make a bad bad first two-thirds of the movie so that you with bad uh, writing and bad acting with bad though. writing and bad acting yeah, okay listen I mean, the bleach blonde ben affleck okay i will give you that that was not good <laughs> that that was that was a little bit outside what this movie probably it looked like magatu <laughs> <laughs> I think he was. It was like an odd channeling of like Joaquin Phoenix and Gladiator. Maybe I. I don't know what it was. It. It was kind of out of left field. I didn't like that part. I agree, but I think it's necessary for this movie to show flawed perspectives. I. I right. think I. I agree, and I think I think there was a good way to do this, and this was not it. Like Ridley Scott it, was not the right director. That's <laughs> that probably you could make a case for that. I. Yeah. I think there was a way to make this movie right, and, and but you needed to flush things out a little more in the first two parts. That's my biggest thing, is that it's so disjointed to the point that you are, have trouble following along. Like, they're random cuts to two years later, and when it feels like you walk out of one room, you walk into another room, and it's two years later, and you're having a new conversation. You, you need a little bit more coherent storytelling in the first two parts. And instead, you just end up with with all these feeling like, like I said, highlights of stories that are badly told. But that is their perspective. Like, you've seen Rashomon, right? Rashomon is disjointed as well. The, no, I haven't first, seen Rashomon. The first half of Rashomon doesn't make any sense. Like, you watch that movie and it's like what what is happening why are these why are these perspectives so disjointed why does nothing make sense well it makes sense because they're deliberately omitting things that the character's subjectivity doesn't want to convey to audiences they don't want to fess up to the truth of what actually happened so i agree that it's clumsy storytelling but it's purposeful and so i guess the difference in our reviews is that i i appreciated that Whereas you guys, and I think with, with some validity, uh, felt uh, like the story should have been um, more congealed, like Miles's uh, last 300 pages. So they tried to make Rashomon. Instead, they made a medieval vantage point. <laughs> I mean, that, well, that's all I could I mean, think yeah, of as I was watching. I'm like, this is vantage point. And, Listen, and rewind let, that. Let's, okay, yeah, that... let's make a medieval vantage point to be the quintessential Me Too movement movie. That's... Listen, sorry, they weren't there. <laughs> in the 14th century yeah but we, we also don't we haven't had books about everybody's perspective either so i mean they're obviously making two-thirds of this movie up i'm sure right well so which one which parts are they making up i mean then that's sort of what you got to look at i guess 
I I don't know. I agree. It's a little heavy handed. I think the horse f- scene a little heavy handed. I think we get it. <laughs> yeah. But, but I, all in all, look, I'm only giving it three stars. I think it's a, it's a necessary movie. I'm glad that I saw it. I'm glad it was made. I hear you guys, but in the end, I I value the existence of the movie more than not having this movie ever made. One thing I enjoyed was the very first scene when they basically had Paul Bettany's character in a Knight's Tale rallying like rallying everybody up for the duel. Like <laughs> like it was I mean, it was like the exact same thing. I was like there's no way they actually did that like 700 years ago. But, you know. Did you guys read that Ben Aff- or actually Matt Damon cannot grow facial hair? No. That was a problem that they had on the set of this movie. I don't know exactly what they did, but it was obviously some sort of prosthetic. But you know, well, I always thought obviously, he was. Obviously, I had a lot was of that going on. Kind of a Streisand, <laughs> but in this movie, he kind of kicks kicked ass. So his Stillwater facial hair is not real either. No, and this is the second time Matt Damon's been in France this year. I kind of like this. You know, let's let's <laughs> let's have him say bonjour, more, bonjourno more often. You know, maybe in a flannel shirt. Let's let's do that more often because he's two for two in movies where he's in France. Well, there's a lot of movies set outside the country because they're the only ones letting people shoot movies. Uh, I'll just I'll just say this: Matt and Ben would not have greenlit this movie off their old TV show, and yet this was their follow-up Goodwill Hunting project. I mean, they they were patting themselves on the back writing this, you know they were, and then they're like, oh, yeah. okay, we need this last part to actually be good. We'll we'll call in a real writer. <laughs> <laughs> they did kind of say that when they were on jimmy fallon this week they were like yeah she's way better than we are i think they acknowledge that well i mean affleck is clearly a talented writer he's 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 had his things but matt damon like when yeah goodwill hunting's great but promised land and this like okay he's he's obviously over his head so if you think ridley scott was the wrong director who would you have had i told you tony tony gilroy i think would be a really interesting director to do this kind of thing and he obviously is friends with Damon. Like, they had their, their born, you know, thing. What do you think, Terry? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. You're right. He's the wrong director, but I didn't really put any thought into who, who could have done it. Let me ask you something. Did you enjoy this movie more or less than the Jackass Forever preview that you saw before it? I actually didn't see that this time. I was shocked. I didn't, really? I didn't either, but I showed no, up a little really? late. So wow. I, okay. I, it may have been the first one to play again. I got to say, it was a close call for me, but I would still go with the Jackass Forever preview. <laughs> That's a three and a half star preview. I uh, Yes, absolutely. Uh, <laughs> all right. Well, two stars from me, two and a half from Todd, three from Zach. It's in theaters now. Go check it, it out there. Absolutely flopped too. I think I made like four million dollars. Oh really? Wow. Eek. That's that's not good. Don't see okay. Venom. Go see good movies like this. <laughs> Venom. We can is, all agree that this is better than Venom. They're about the same. But Halloween Kills is definitely what you got to go see. That that did uh, destroy the box office, by the way. And probably see it in theaters, not on Peacock. Yeah, I mean, I mean, you you need the the fan interaction with a horror movie of that magnitude. All right. Well, that's the last duel. Let's move on into our deep dive of the week. Uh, speaking of movies that are on Peacock, that's where I caught this one this week. We are celebrating the 10th anniversary like this weekend. It came out 10 years ago this weekend. 
of margin call. Sir, if those assets decrease by just 25%, that loss would be greater than the current market capitalization of this entire company. How long would it take to clear that from our books? You cannot be doing what you're thinking of doing. Sell it all today. You're selling something that you know has no value. So that we may survive. Now, this is not necessarily the big movies that we sometimes do on our uh, on our deep dives. Uh, I don't know if in if you guys remember Margin Call or if you've heard of it. If not, go watch it on Peacock because it is a brilliant film and we're going to spend the next hour or so talking about it. Um, so yeah, it came out 10 years ago, written and directed by J.C. Chandor. Uh, we're going to start with some trivia here and I am hosting trivia once again, two times in a row on the deep dive. Uh, who went first last time? Zach went first last time? I think. Yeah. So Todd's going first this time. So Zach unplug and, uh, and we'll see, we'll see how Todd does here. All right. Oh, I got to actually look at this now. Uh, let's see here. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Ten. All right. 10 points, seven questions. Okay. Okay. We'll see how I, I wrote these as I watched it. I remembered like nothing about this when I was going into it. And so, We'll see how these ended up turning out. All right. Um, okay. Um, first question is worth two points. Why does Eric Dale think he shouldn't be fired? And how long has he been working at the firm? Okay. He's been working there for, I don't know, like, like, I don't know, like 18 years or something. Like, uh, I'll give you half a point. It was 19. <laughs> and he shouldn't be fired because... I don't know, because he was in the middle of something? He works in risk management. Oh, he's the one that says that? Okay. Yeah, he's right. like, I yeah. work in risk management. Yeah, this is not something you type? should cut. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Okay, got it. All right. Uh, next question: What does Paul Bettany ask Kevin Spacey for when he first enters his office? Talk about dating the movie a little bit. Oh, what does he ask him for? Um, I have no idea. Nicorette. Nicorette. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. I, again, dating the movie a little bit there. Yeah. Uh, next question. This should be an easy one. What's the last thing Eric says to Peter when the doors uh, to the elevators close? He says, be careful. That is correct. Next question. How much money did Will Emerson make last year? Uh, Will Emerson made uh, $2.5 million. That is correct. Uh, how old is Jared? Jared uh 42 43 40 40 I I literally wrote wrote down as the answer he's a man he's 40 Okay <laughs> I thought okay Damn Pretty it. sure it was 40 okay. Um what two states did Eric's bridge connect or two points I New York and New Jersey Ohio and West Virginia 
I don't know. Okay. I don't, I don't remember the details of that conversation. All right. Last question. This is worth two points. Who walks in on Seth crying in the bathroom and what is he doing? Uh, well, it was... What are their names? Jared and he's shaving. That, that is correct. All right. So you end up with four and a half points. That was not ideal. All right. Yeah, you're going to get at least two more than I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Come back, Zach. Okay. All right. All right. So seven questions worth 10 points. Todd got four and a half. Not so, bad. Let's see how you do here. First you're question. Do better. First question is worth two points. Uh, why does Eric Dale think he shouldn't be fired? And how long has he been working at the firm? Nineteen years. That is correct. Um, God got his half point for saying eighteen. By the way. Okay. Why doesn't he think he should be fired? Yes. Risk management. That is correct. You don't go to people in risk management. Todd knows that. FedEx man. Mm -hmm. uh, next question: What does Paul Bettany ask Kevin Spacey for when he first enters his office? Uh, uh, nicotine. Nicotine. I'll give you half point. Nicorette. Okay. Nicorette. Yeah. Uh, next question. Uh, what's the last thing Eric says to Peter when the doors to the elevator close? Correct. Next question. How much money did Will Emerson make last year? $2.5 million. Now, do you want a breakdown of how that was spent? Because a lot of it was on hookers and booze. Not a lot. Only like 67500 or something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right, seventy six thousand five hundred. Like <laughs> Most of that on hookers. Next question: How old is Jared? Forty three. Which we mentioned in the last podcast. Is it forty? All right, I thought it was forty. No, he said. Okay, so earlier in the movie, someone said, someone said forty, but then he said that he's forty three. Yeah, they said he's like forty. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I wrote down that Simon Baker was forty two, and I was like, oh, his character is like forty three. Listen, I knew that I knew that last week before we 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 watched it. <laughs> Rewatched it. We, we were okay. Yeah. Well, then I I got that wrong. I, I heard the line it's like the last like line in Little something. Children. You got that you got that wrong too. But okay, he's a man. Yeah, he's they, they say that he doesn't answer. Yeah, somebody he's else. He's a man. He's forty. Mike Gundy would appreciate it. So yeah. like, how all right, old I'll is give that guy? you both. All right, so Todd, I gave Todd a point for that then too because that's what he said. All right, next question's worth two points. What two states did Eric's bridge connect? Ohio and West Virginia. Real bridge, by the way. Moundsville Bridge. And last question is worth two points. Who walks in on Seth crying in the bathroom and what is he doing? Jared is shaving. That is uh, that is awesome. I was correct. hoping for more numbers questions. You know, like Todd doesn't do well with the numbers questions. I would kill with the numbers you questions. You still with this destroyed movie. me. Like I, you still beat me. Like by it was. You only missed half 50, a point. It was one thousand five hundred thirty-one years that that they saved. Through the construction of that bridge, right. I was prepared See, for that shit. I didn't. I didn't know how well you guys actually knew this movie. Oh, I could do this shit in my sleep. I don't know. I mean, I've only I've seen it probably three times all the way through. This was so the I, second time I'd ever I'd ever watched wow. it all the way through. Okay. All right, well, well, I love this movie. I and and I do too, Zach. Since you are the expert on margin call, obviously, since you almost aced my quiz, the only thing you missed is you said nicotine instead of nicorette. Yeah. Um. <laughs> well. I still should have gotten a point for that. That's like you got a half a point. Okay, that's all fair. right. Tell us, tell us all about Margin Call and your experience with it. 
So Margin Call came out in 2011. It did not play in any theaters close to where I was. I remember seeing that cast and thinking, oh my God, this is a movie I got to see. And uh, I saw it, I believe, sometime in 2012. I think I rented it on a Redbox. Do you guys remember Redbox? Whatever happened to Redbox? That was a great uh, system. Didn't they, even have, didn't they have a Redbox bowl? Or am I crazy? Um, anyway. I think, I think they might still have it. Yeah, uh, this was an amazing movie. Um, we got to talk about Kevin Spacey at some point, but you know we'll get that out of the way. It, it's still an amazing movie. It holds up, it, I think, extremely well. It is a movie that is extremely quotable. It is a movie that's extremely prescient about the way we live in the world in 2021 and yet also had a great deal of perceptive insight into the world of 2008 which is when the story takes place. It is a movie about the Wall Street collapse, and yet you don't, it, it, it isn't a movie that is jargon-ridden. It is um, really accessible. And what is great about that is that I think you can apply some of the lessons of margin call to things that have nothing to do with the economic system in this country. Listen, I know that Todd loves Wolf of Wall Street, but this is like the opposite of Wolf of Wall Street. This is, you know, the 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 ostentatious, you know, over the topness, completely removed. This is about people in the middle of the night having to step up to the plate and explain to themselves why this system failed. And I think it is an absolutely fascinating piece. And it's also one of the examples of a movie that was shot obviously in a low budget. And yet the low budget, I think, kind of helps it in a way. It helps that the atmosphere is so claustrophobic and so like sterilized. And it is full of great performances. And I just I, I think it is a movie that is has aged tremendously, minus Kevin Spacey, and uh, should be watched by more people. Yeah, and I, I agree. I um, I remembered that I liked it, but I didn't remember much else about it going into it, watching it for this. and. Uh, yeah, it it is it is brilliant. Uh, I I loved I loved the rewatch of it. Uh, um, the the ensemble cast all complements each other really really well, and it, it works really well together. Uh, it's it's brilliantly put together, brilliantly uh, written, uh, and and uh, it manages to be suspenseful, even though most of what they're talking about is either stuff that's over our head or too vague to actually pin down exactly what's going on. But, uh, but you're invested in everything that's going on at the same time. It it's, it's brilliant. It's, it's a really well done movie for sure. Todd. Yeah, I, I actually did see this movie in the theater and I remember hyping it up to Zach and I think that gave him pause about actually <laughs> probably being able to <laughs> embrace it, which is probably why it took him so long to watch it. But I know he agreed right away. I, I, I mean, I've, I love the movie. I think it's the best screenplay of 2011, the best editing, and the best cast of 2011. Like it's, and I don't think it's really even that close. I, I love how much of the movie is like inspired by like that Mad Men kind of thing, where it's like uh, all the all the characters. It, it like it flawlessly portrays like the hierarchy of a business, and which is something that isn't really portrayed in like any movie. Like you know, there's like all these guys. They're sort of like drinking. They're not really on the job, but they're burning the midnight oil, and it like unites all of the levels of these people, and they all actually kind of get to know each other. Then it portrays like the the younger guys that have gotten like shot into power. It, it has the the older guys that are stuck at the bottom. It's all about who you know and how you know them and why you know them and how you conduct yourself. 
I've always been fascinated about that, about the movie. And, you know, like you guys said, it, it ages really well. I don't think there's any part of this movie that's boring. It, it just blows by. You're right in the middle of the action, right when it starts. And it, it's, it's, a, it's like a flawless screenplay. And one of the best, like, first movies of, of any filmmaker that I, that I can remember. J.C. Chandor just, like, put his name out there right away. Oscar nomination. And then he, I mean, I, I think he's, he's had a really interesting last 10 years. Yeah, it's like that that's a great that's a great point. You watch this movie. I counted nine main characters in this movie. There's really only like nine real characters. And you watch this movie, you know these people right away. I, I don't know what what they did with the screenplay or whether it was the filmmaking, but you know these people so well. And they don't even really talk about themselves or their lives outside their work, but their their attributes, their um you know, outside of a dog dying, of course. Well, true, true. <laughs> but it's like, and, and maybe it's because some of the, the the actors are so recognizable and they're so good in this movie. But like, gosh, by the end of this movie, it feels like you are a part of that firm. It feels like you've been working there for a really long time. It feels like you know the strengths and the weaknesses of each person. It feels like you know how the company how the company folded, and it almost has nothing to do with financial, you know. Uh, uh, equations or anything like that it's it's a personality study and the fundamental flaw of this of this business of this brokerage firm is how they put incompetent people at the top which is so relevant which is so you know uh relatable to i think anybody who works at a job where there are a lot of employees where there's a lot of hierarchy and uh it's just so fun to watch i i you can tell right away who are the people that really care about it who are the people that are phony who are the people that are incompetent it's just it, it's a it's a great experience being just thrown into this lion's den of a crisis that they that they're experiencing and seeing you know their real personalities manifest themselves. Todd and Zach, you guys both had it in your top twenty five of the decade. Um, you you two and Adam both have it, or all three of you have it in your top five of twenty eleven. I'm the only one that doesn't have it in my top ten. I may need to change that. I was just looking at my top ten, and it's better than some of the movies I have there. Like extremely it, line or could have been close. That is not in my Ouch. top ten. Okay, okay. Um, the same star rating. <laughs> very diff. Yeah, this is a high three and a half, and that one's a low three and a half. Anyways, it's our number three movie of the year for that. Uh, for that year, which is, I mean, you look at the other ones on that list; they're much more critically acclaimed films. So you got a separation, Drive, Tree of Life, Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Like these are ones that, that people know and people recognize. Margin Call is not one of those, but it belongs there and it deserves to be there because it's it's just that good. And yeah, when um, you get that one screenplay nomination as your own nomination, that's almost like in an only a director nomination and not the other ones. It's like, okay, we recognize this is the best, like probably the best movie, but mm -hmm. it's not really our kind of thing. So we're right. just gonna give it that and we're gonna reward our own things, you know. And instead, a couple years later, they they went crazy over the big short, which basically told a very similar story. Oh, but the big short is so lackadaisical compared to this movie. Yes. I, I mean, the big short is so much about being spectacular, you know, and having big Oscar moments and really trying to even do the fully ambitious task of trying to explain everything to dumb audiences. Yeah, it was trying to be margin call meets Wolf of Wall Street. Yeah, yeah, that's a good comparison. And, 
you know, with with a movie like this, you just sort of have to sort of say like, let 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 the characters just sort of explain themselves. Don't try to put Margot Robbie in a bathtub to try to you know get the audience excited to explain some aspect of the like this movie. This movie doesn't remotely try to explain the origins of the economic crisis, right? But they but they present themselves, and you can and you can pick up on on it enough. I think it's an amazing screenplay. I, J.C. Chander, genius man. And I, look, we all loved a most violent year. I never saw the movie he did with Ben Affleck. Did you see that, Todd? Like, yeah, Triple Frontier. I mean, that that's just him cashing a check, I think. But like, all is lost. I mean, that showed the other end of the spectrum where it's like, okay, I'm a great director too. I'm not just yeah. a great writer. And then is he, he the, he's the Todd Field of this decade. He has to be right. Like coming out well, of he's nowhere, he's made more than two films. That's so. true. He's probably less reclusive too. But <laughs> like coming out of nowhere to make a movie like this that is so good and so perceptive and has such a great cast, it's remarkable that this movie is ever made. Who gets a solo written, solo directed movie as your first film with that cast? I mean, that doesn't happen. Yeah, it's crazy. And he was, I mean, he's a young man too, right? Wasn't he like maybe 30 when he wrote this? I, I'm not sure. Yeah, I mean, I mean. if he was 30, he wasn't even a man yet because you have to be 40. Before, to be yeah, as Mike Gundy told us. <laughs> no, maybe not. Well, he's it, it a doesn't, older it, than I thought. It doesn't say on IMDb what his age is. He's 47. Okay, so he was, so he was 37. 37. Man, that puts a perspective on things. Why aren't we out there writing screenplays like this? I know, I know. Terry, you're like 37, aren't you? 36. I'm getting there. Apparently he made a short film in 2004. That was his only other credit. Yeah, I'm intrigued by Craven the Hunter, which is uh, in pre-production for a 2023 release with a uh, friend of the podcast, Aaron Taylor Johnson. It's a Marvel movie, right? Oh, is it? Oh, is God it? damn it. He's doing Marvel too. <laughs> Jesus. Well, it's written by Stan Lee, right? They're the, the book. Maybe. I don't know if it's, it's awful. All right, so you know, one of the things I love about this movie, maybe this is a good segue, is this movie takes place in, in the course of 24 hours. You know, it doesn't give us a whole lot of backstory. We sort of have to put the pieces together, and uh, you know, we kind of thought that there, there are many great 24-hour movies out there. This is, I, I is it fair to say, if we're going to do a Mount Rushmore of 24-hour movies, th this is this is our uh, not William Howard Taft, but our our unanimous pick. <laughs> yeah, I think we could go with that. This is our this is our uh our Yeah, I would, I would never argue with that. All right. So so yeah, that's our Mount Rushmore movies that take place within a 24-hour period. Uh so this is our our pick that we're going to go with all together. So we each get one submission here. And maybe we'll argue about uh, a Taft pick later, but um <laughs> uh Todd, why don't you go first on this? Well, I have Four movies I think qualify that were in my top 100. This uh, Marjorie wasn't quite one of them, but I think I don't know if I'm going the highest rated one. That's one thing, but the one that I, I you would think of immediately is Before Sunset, yeah. which yeah. kind of takes place in about you know two hours. It's about an hour and twenty minute movie, and it's it's the perfect movie of telling a movie in like real time, and it's easily the best of that series. I. I adore that movie. It, it's perfect and has probably the best ending in the history of movies. So, yeah, Before Sunset has to be my choice. Yeah, I I had a feeling that was going to be your pick, for sure. Um, and it's a good pick. 
it's a good pick like that that's like the first thing that popped into my head of of movies that take place in a really short time span it's it, before sunset was the first one that i thought of not before sunrise which is the one that was on your top 100 <laughs> yes yes all, all all three of them actually do take place in less than 24 hours but before sunset is the only one that's like it's clearly obvious this is like taking place over a couple of hours yeah it, it, it's a real time does thing. before midnight take place in 24 hours it doesn't feel like it does but yeah but like that it, it starts like midday and then ends in the middle of the night right we should, yeah, we, it starts in like the the morning when they're like uh, at the airport, and yeah, and then we should have made their, this their whole day. We should have uh, mandated that this list, a la you know, not no Fargo on our power rankings, also not include Rick, Richard Linklater movies because there are so many of them that take place in a twenty four hour time span that are so good. Because we could also go with Everybody Wants Some and Days and Confused as well. Well, it's it's debatable and, about Days and Confused. Like, uh, when are they actually ending the party at the end of the, the thing? I mean, like, because it starts at the beginning of school, and then he it ends with him in bed, like in the middle of the morning. Sometime I don't know. That was the same thing I thought was like super bad. It's, it's debatable if that's actually just twenty four hours or not. I hadn't even thought about super bad. I feel like that's definitely 24 hours. I mean, if it's not, you know, it's... it starts with them well before school. They, they like, he goes to pick him up then they go to the gas station. Then they go to school and then it ends with them like at the mall the next morning. How, how early does that mall open? You know, I think it's a little bit more than 24 hours, but it's, it's in that same realm as days and confused. All right. Well, I'll go next. Uh, I had, just looking at my top 100, there are two on here that I could go with, and I'm going to go with the one that's not rated as high, just because I think it's a better example of of this, and that's 1917. Oh, um, I didn't think about that one. Yeah, and, and it's it's such a perfect example of of just telling a truncated story, and and the way it's shot, um, with with it seemingly being one take. And and just the the intensity of it of it going through this this one day where they're where they have to uh, where they have to deliver this message. It, it's a it's a great example of of this of of how you can tell a story in such a small period of time. I like it. Yep, good call. All right, Zach, what do you got? Okay, I had three great movies to pick. Um, I'll mention the two that didn't make it on our honorable mentions, but I got to go with the same movie that was on my power ranking last week, which is 25th hour. Mm -hmm. Technically maybe a movie that takes place in 25 hours, but you know what? I think we make, we allow super bad on this list. We're going to allow 25th hour on this list. I mean, listen, it has the uh, greatest bathroom scene in the history of movies. It also has uh, arguably the greatest opening credit sequence in movie history where you have the twin towers and that incredible Terrence Blanchard score. It has, uh, it's Spike's best movie. It's Edward Norton's best movie. It's a great movie that we'll deep dive next year. There are other podcasts out there that have already deep dove it, but we're going to do a better job. I promise. It's the best movie that took place in 25 hours or less. We'll accept it. We'll accept it. All right, Todd, what other movies were you thinking of? 
Oh, the other ones on my top 100, obviously, uh, Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross, which yeah. is my number yeah. six of all time. Uh, the Breakfast Club mm-hmm. takes place over like eight or nine hours. It's a great movie. Doctor Strange Love obviously takes place in less than a day. And, I, and Clerks, which controversially, I guess, was not on my top 100. Uh, that was, that's, I mean, that's over the course of like maybe 10 or 12 hours. All of which borderline perfect movies. Yeah, the only other, um, the two others I was thinking of that were on my top 100 were um, United 93. Oh, which, that's a great call. Yeah, it's a wow. really good one. And that was the one I was, I thought about going with over 1917, but I think 1917 is a better example of the, the under 24 hour storytelling. Um, but uh, it's a well, good they one. Both were pretty short, like time frames, right? Right. Yeah. Um, and then the other one that um, I, it's kind of cheating, but I mean, if if it's all a dream, does does the Wizard of Oz count? I mean, no. it kind of does. And it, like it was all a dream. What? I feel like saying Inception. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, but no, Inception takes place over several days, or does it? Is it all just Cobb's dream? We don't know. Anyways, yeah. So so that's what a. Uh, that that's what I was saying. But United ninety three was the one I was really debating with. Do I go with that or nineteen seventeen? The real Zach, interesting thing is that like we're we're talking about the best opening credit scenes of all time. Like how do we not have that as a power rankings? Yes. Because <laughs> yeah. like happened? I was like I don't even remember necessarily the opening credits twenty fifth hour. So are you cre- that is an amazing opening credit sequence? Watch it. It's like you. It, the, well, we'll the, do that soon. Okay. It, okay. We'll like, do when it when I win the it next would, power rankings. My list. Listen, they, I, I'm perfectly fine with 25th hour being on my third consecutive number, being my third consecutive number one. I mean, I would rank that number one for a lot of things, but what else did you have, Zach? Okay, I had um, Days and Confused, obviously. I also had The Paper, uh, great mm. Ron Howard movie. I had Jean Dielman, 23 Key to Commence, 1080 Bruxelles, which I watched this summer. Technically, that's not a 24 hour movie. I think it's more like a 36 hour movie, but I'm going to call it 24 hours just for the sake of this. And then Todd, Blind Spotting. Isn't that 24 hours? I feel like that's 24 hours in the life of those characters. Yeah. Colin I mean, Miles. but like, I, dude, I, I had I had like six movies written down that are like top 100 of all time. Blind Spotting, we, I was in my top 10 of that year, but I don't. Blind Spotting is a movie that I, ha, has stayed with me. And that is a movie that feels very much contained within a 24 hour time period. Yeah, I don't think that movie is ever going to age either. Like, that movie seems very relevant regardless of when you watch it. Mm-hmm. Have you seen it, Terry? No, I haven't. You see, Terry seems like someone who would watch the TV show before the movie. It seems like t- Terry would see the Tomorrow War before Blind Spotting. <laughs> I will talk about that next week. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so our our Mount Rushmore we got here is uh, Margin Call, Before Sunset, nineteen seventeen, and Twenty Fifth Hour. Okay, that's a like fantastic it. list. That might that's be our best list. list that we've ever put together. <laughs> it's pretty awesome. It's pretty awesome, and they're all they're all different examples of it too. I mean, you've got a a real time talkie in in before well, sunset. Both, you, you and I both had real time talkies, though. Was my, true, but but my my I mean, nineteen seventeen. It's real it's, time. It spans it, a lot more area. Oh, I'm sorry, guys. Yeah. Was Memento twenty four hours too? Did we forget that? Ooh, 
I think that was 24 I mean, hours. You get into a gray area where how many, how much flashback makes it no longer part? Like that's fair. That part of- that's fair. That's fair. That movie that's does a have good some point. flashbacks. Yeah, that's a good point. All right, what's yeah, what's you the? Ta- kind of feel like you have to be in the moment. What's the William Howard Taft pick? I think it's gotta be United ninety three. I I didn't even think about that, but that, that that I mean that'd be a great choice. Okay, I like it. Let's do it. Okay, there we go. So United ninety three is our William Howard Taft. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> or my I I would say maybe margin calls are Taft because it's it, it's so it's quality but forgotten about. Doesn't uh, just by the nature of the William Howard Taft pick, doesn't that mean the movie has to be bloated and <laughs> extreme in length? So, so we're talking about an under twenty-four hour time period for a movie, but bloated and larger than it needed to be. Yes, like John D. Elman, or or or, 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 or set in a bathtub, or something. <laughs> that that movie was had some bathtub scenes. Uh, all right. Well, let's do some recasting on this one. Uh, I think <clears throat> Zach, you sent us a list of what five characters? Yeah, but I did all nine. I did. All right, I've got seven here. I did I seven. Did, I did seven. Uh, you, you, I mean, you could do. Yeah, it, it's any any character. Well, you omitted one that was bizarre. That I mean, you said you John, uh, Zach said well, six, and he omitted yeah. one that was like, how you how you not? Well, yeah. That? I mean, how do you choose? It's impossible. I I, okay. I, I thought he said five. Yeah, I think I only sent five. He only sent five. It's what? No, he said. He said Peter, Seth, Eric, Sam, Will, and John. He didn't say Eric. Yeah, I didn't say Eric. I thought I Eric. Eric is somewhat, somewhat easier, I think, to recast than the other characters. All right. Well, the, let's, the let's get into this. Let's get employee. into this. Okay. All right. So let's start with Peter. Peter Sullivan, played by Zachary Quinto. Uh, let's see here. Zach, you're going to go first. All right. I had to do a gimmick with this because it's only 10 years old, and this is a perfect cast. So I went 1970s recasting, okay? This would have been a killer 70s movie with a great cast, great, you know, sub- You've done post this before. It's going to be the paranoia. same actors. It's not going to be the same actors. It might be, <laughs> but who who gives us shit? Okay, I'm going with my Peter. This was my weakest casting. I don't know. Peter is so hard to cast. If this was a 1960s cast, obviously Anthony Perkins. But if we're going 70s, mm. if we're going 70s, Bam. we got to go someone. Who's gonna... Yeah, thank you. You just blew Todd's mind. <laughs> we're going to go someone who's up and coming. Someone who maybe on a t- maybe making his presence on a TV show, a la Zachary Quinto. Uh, I think we're gonna go with Rob Reiner, a young Rob Reiner, aka Meathead on All in the Family. I, I, I find someone better. Okay, I had a hard time casting it in the seventies. The rest of my list is way better, but the Peter was a hard, a hard cat, a hard sell. It had to be someone who wasn't big at the time, right? Zachary Quinto was still, you know, coming right off Star Trek, but he wasn't a huge actor. That, he was in Heroes, right? Isn't that his thing? Yeah, Heroes and, and Star Trek were his big things at this point. Okay, all right. I don't love it, but... I don't love it we'll either. The rest of yours goes. Well, Zachary Quinto's also a little too old for that role. He says he's 28, but Zachary Quinto's like 35 when this came out. And he was also a producer, which is why he's the main character. It, it's debatable if that's the main character, but, you know. All right, Todd, who do you have? I don't know. I mean, I didn't go with the 70s, obviously. I, I went... Right. Well, I went with somebody who I feel like this could be a sequel almost to Dope. So I went with Shamaic Moore. Mm. And I I, th- I think that that character in Dope is is like a really clear 
uh, path to being that like basically rocket scientist who uh, ends up doing <laughs> like some making some insane money and, <laughs> and working in this, this company. Uh, Shemek Moore is actually like a really it. good actor and he isn't in that much shit. He should be in more. And uh, he's probably a little too young, honestly, but I mean, screw it. All right. That's so, a great call. I that, approve. that is a good one. Thank you. So what I what I was thinking of, I was thinking of people who are at similar points in their careers to the people who were in Margin Call. So thinking of Zachary Quinto, like we were saying, he had heroes, he had Star Trek, he had this, he he was getting to be a big, a big face and recognizable face in, in a big franchise. So I went with John Boyega. You you gotta have someone who who is who's young but also when you look at him you're like yeah he could be he could be a rocket scientist and i think john boyega could pull that off i i was actually circling him for a couple of roles so yeah that's that's not bad yeah the the other my my backup choice for this was will poulter but i think that's mainly because he has the same brow as zachary quinto <laughs> <laughs> he never is it seemed to me like he was that intelligent though yeah yeah or at least all his characters are kind of morons but he was just cast in uh, Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3, which is what made me think of it. He's going to be Adam Warlock. Which is like the main bad guy. Anyways. That's going to be weird. I like it. Yeah. I like I like, I like make, making Peter African-American. I, I, I think that this movie, one of the flaws in it is it's missing diversity. And yes, let's make Peter but that's African-American. also that's also a reality it, of that time. Dude. Very true. Well, very true. Well, I mean, but Peter, Peter is like Zachary Quinto is homosexual, right? So, I mean, I guess there is a little True. diversity there. But in the deleted scenes, he's dating Meryl Streep's daughter, which which we'll talk about later. Ooh, okay. Mamie Gummer, like she's in this. Uh, I think it's Meryl Streep's other daughter, but yes, the other oh. Gummer. It's it's a Gummer. All right. I've been not watching the deleted scenes. Let's let's go to Seth now, uh, played by Penn Badgley. In uh, in the original Zach, who's your '70s pick? All right, I love my '70s casting for this. I hate my Peter. If you guys can think of a '70s actor to play Peter, please let me know because I'm embarrassed by that pick. That was horrible. I admit it. Rob Reiner is awful. Uh, but uh, I'm gonna go. This is a great one. You ready for it? '70s pick for Seth Richard Dreyfus, a young Richard Dreyfus. He's you know what he's he's on he's on the cocaine a little bit he's got the speed he's he's thinking about how much money he makes he his life ambition is to be on Wall Street he cries in the bathroom stall when he knows he's getting fired perfect Richard Dreyfus role from the seventies I feel like he's too old yeah I mean just just make yeah, it sixties he was just in make his it sixties so you can say Anthony Perkins no Anthony Perkins well yes I of course but. Richard Dreyfus was in his, tw- I believe Richard Dreyfus was 30 when he won his Oscar. So that's about the age of Penn Badgley, maybe a little older, but we're saying 70. Penn Badgley, I think it was 23, 24. That's all, yeah, the character's 23, I believe. The actor was 25. Okay. When it came out. How I like Richard Dreyfus. Uh, I said Nick Robinson because. That I mean, I guess that's sort of a default answer in a lot of ways, but is. the what was that movie he did? Um, uh, Love Simon, he was in like the oh, yeah, yeah, a teacher, the the TV series that I watched because I'm a film independent member. 
I don't know. I mean, I, I'm sure you've seen Shout him out. in a lot of stuff, but he he is uh he he has that perfect persona. I honestly was thinking about him for Peter. He's sort of in the middle of the range for both actors, but he seems like that kind of guy who's just along for the ride that would be totally fine like brown bagging it back to the back to the office after going yes. to the strip club. I want to you know? talk about the brown bag because that's By was the way, I am detail. I am I am quite uh upset, Todd, that you do not have just a bottle and a brown bag. Exactly. Missed opportunity. I mean, I could. I have brown bags right there. <laughs> but, you know, I don't know. Nick Robinson, if you watch a couple of uh, a couple of his movies or a couple of his, whatever he's appeared in, then yes. Like, this is this is a perfect Nick Robinson role. You've really never seen him in anything, Zach? I, I, I mean, I've seen Love, Simon. I just didn't recognize the name. I can't I can't pick him out well, from anything. The Kings I've of seen. Summer, isn't that? Oh, he's shit. In that. He's in what I'm going to talk about next week as what I've watched. Okay. So what you've watched like two weeks ago? Well, I've started watching something that he recently started being a part of. Oh. Look at his IMDb. You'll see, you'll (laughs) understand in a week when I tell you about uh, what that is, which is great, by the way. You don't recognize uh, him? I I don't. Jurassic uh, World. There you go. Okay. All right. I'll go with that. Oh, okay. Oh. Yeah. That makes more sense. He's the older brother. Maybe. Is that what you're going to watch? The Ty Simpkins. We'll yes. talk about it next week. Ty Simpkins, who is, uh, yeah, the kid from Iron Man three, and also what that else we was talked he about in? last week? Yeah, what was he in that we talked about last week? I don't know. What did we talk about last week? <laughs> I can't remember, man. Are you kidding me? <laughs> what was he in? He was in something I talked about last week. Didn't we? No, didn't we review? What would we review? He was. We. No, it remember. wasn't that. It was. He was. And uh, love uh, Simon, no, Hansen. No, it wasn't either. The little children, he was in Little Children, yeah, that's it, yeah, yeah, okay, two weeks ago. Two weeks ago. Who was yeah, he yeah. in Little Children? Was he one he, of the he was, children? he was uh, the kid was the Patrick Wilson's son, yeah, <laughs> wow, it was Ty Simpkins. <laughs> that's not true, yeah, I, I don't see that. It's not in, Nick, Robinson. Not no. Nick Robinson, oh, okay, <laughs> the, the, the little brother, his. Nick Robinson's little brother in Jurassic me, World. This is the William Howard Taft of uh, the six, bad six degrees like <laughs> garbage that we. This is a normal conversation for me and Terry. <laughs> Seriously, <laughs> we have left Zach in the past. I think he's yeah. He's I'm five uh, minutes ago. <laughs> all right, so uh, my Seth is uh, speaking of my Mount Rushmore pick, 1917. It's Dean Charles Chapman. Who was the, oh, um, nice. the brother, the little brother in in 1917? He also was. Uh, he's a little oh, chubby. Yeah, what, I know what was he's he? In, I know he's in Game of Thrones. Nobody yeah, cares. Yeah, he's about Game he, of he's the whiny kid in Game of Thrones. That um, yeah, he's great in 1917, but I think he's a little chubby. He he wouldn't he wouldn't have had that job. And are you really telling me that him and John Boy- Boyega would be friends? I don't know if I believe that. Are they really friends or are they just co-workers? And he's the only guy whose phone number he had other than his boss. He knew his phone number off the top of his head when he called him on the landline. I think there's something to be said for that. Uh, that okay. That's fair. That's fair. All right. Will. Will Emerson, played by Paul Bettany. Um, Zach. Who I have mentioned in this podcast before. Yes, yes, he's been he's called so Rick Van Lichtenham. He, he he has been mentioned. Oh, von Lichtenstein. Get it von right. Lichtenstein. Damn it. Right. Don't talk like that in wine country. 
<laughs> By the way, I totally was thinking Knight's Tale when when they were when they started jousting. Well, when they introduced it, like they had like a hype man. I know. I like, know. I know. They should have had. Freddie I was waiting Mercury for one on of them to just take off their helmet and go go yeah. charging at him. Without we w- we yeah. will rock you. That's what was missing from it. That's. <laughs> I honestly am surprised we didn't deep dive that this year. I've I seen know! that movie yeah. quite a few times. Yeah. Terry, yeah. you've had missed opportunity after missed opportunity. It's yeah, <laughs> there's there's a lot of missed opportunities. Okay. We should deep dive every Heath Ledger movie at some point. That that's a good call. That's a good call. Anyways, Fall would be a really interesting uh, deep dive. Yeah, yeah. Another one that could have been this year. We'll Zach, who's your will? Right. <laughs> so if we're if we're recasting Paul Bettany movies from the seventies. Like we've done on this podcast before, there's only oh, one actor you can go what? with, and that is the one and only Mike- Michael Caine as Will. Pro- Will, okay, you can't That's go with good. anyone else. He's perfect. You could you could go with my boy from the Day of the Jackal. I can't remember his name. Thank you guys, Edward Fox. There we go. Yeah, I don't know who that is. You still don't. Terry doesn't know who Maximilian Shell is, though. I know the name. But, I just don't oh, know the face. I'm going to assign one of you the Day of the Jackal at some point. Not the Jackal, because that movie sucked. Did you guys hear the, the rumor this week that Michael Caine retired, and then he came out and said that he didn't? I did see that. I've seen a whole lot of he memes. Get, he gets like up at of, 6 a.m. every morning, goddammit. Isn't that what he said in his statement? I've seen a lot of memes of, like, Chris, or of uh, Walter White and uh oh I mean, it must have been like saul or something where they're like head to head and he's like you will retire when i say or you retire or something like that i've seen todd who's your will Wait, Christopher Nolan <laughs> that went nowhere okay i don't know my will is james mcavoy yes uh, perfect yeah, he's the right age, and plus, he was awesome in his office role in the in Wanted, which is you know, I okay. think probably the most underrated action movie of the last twenty years. But I, I think he fits this, this role really well. It's a little slimy, and but he's also kind of yeah. likable at the same time. That's... And James McAvoy doesn't really have a whole lot of these roles where he where he's like the supporting guy who's trying to steal scenes, and Paul Bettany steals scenes in this movie. The thing is, James McAvoy could also play the Simon Baker character. That's the problem. And if I were to see him as Paul Bettany, I would almost think you should be Simon Baker more than Paul Bettany. No, Simon Baker is way more difficult to cast. Like I don't think that is James the hardest role to recast. I agree. Yeah. All right. So my pick for it's Will. Not a bad I did, pick, though. I did not go British for this one. Um, I, I was thinking like, where where was Paul Bettany at? Paul Bettany, he kind of had this had this moment about ten years previous, and he he'd been kind of dabbling in some stuff since and doing doing some stuff. He was about to make a comeback. Wasn't he, he was in Da Vinci Jarvis. Code? He was in Da Vinci Code. Yeah, he didn't kill his career. Charles Darwin movie. <laughs> yeah, he was in the Darwin movie. Anyways, I went with Joseph Gordon-Levitt. Yeah, I was I was mm. I was considering him for a couple of roles too. Just kind kind of that 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 thankless position of being up, but not at the top and stuck somewhere in the middle. That, and and I, I could see him pull that off really well. Here's the thing. Todd's comparison of Mad Men is a great comparison. This is a Jared Harris role. 
I just don't know when Jared Harris would have played it, maybe early 2000s. So it doesn't mesh really with any of our recasting, but this is obviously the lane price of this firm. Yeah. That, I mean, that, that, that is really true. That's a good, that's a good call. I, I can't think of that either. About. When was the first time we saw Jared Harris in a movie? That's a great question. I don't know. I don't know if I've seen him in anything but Mad Men. To be perfectly honest, no. He I, was, I think I'm thinking was, of the different Jared. Oh, uh, what was that? <laughs> he played Andy Warhol, and I shot Andy Warhol. Mr. Deeds. That was definitely the first time I saw him. He was, he was also like, in Happiness. Wow, who was he in Happiness? Fascinating. Mr. Deeds. He was like the head of the paper or something. That is a that is actually the perfect time to have him in in, in margin call. Am I, wait, am I thinking? I am thinking of the same guy. Okay, yeah, yeah, Jared Harris. He also Son of Richard Deeds. Harris. Shit, he's really wow. Out of the way. Really, I didn't know that. He's in National Killers. That he was also the the boat captain in Curious Case of Benjamin Button. I, yeah, I remember that. I mean, that was way after I knew who he was. But Mr. Diesel was definitely the first thing I saw him in. I didn't remember him in Igby Goes Down. What's the first thing I remember him in? It's got to be Mr. Deeds, Terry. Well, I don't know if I necessarily remember him in Mr. Deeds. He he was like the head of the paper trying to uh, like uh. It, like trash the story about Longfellow deeds. Okay. Oh no. Okay. I've it's seen the movie long. way more than you have. Apparently. Yeah, I, it's been way too long. All right, let's move um, on. Come on. Who's yeah, next? let's move on. All right. So I need to give my. Uh, no, I gave my will. Let's go, Sam. Yes, great uh, recasting. I love. I love my seventies recasting. This Sam, is Sam. The easiest uh, one of played all. Played by. Uh, played by Kevin Spacey. Who do we got? Jack, Jack. Lemon. <clears throat> well, yeah. Easy. That, Easy. Well, that's almost cheating, though. <laughs> <laughs> All right, uh, go, go to the present day recasting. Todd, I said John Favreau. No, oh, that's that's not terrible. See, like that Kevin Spacey in this movie, he's like, I don't know. There, there's something about him that that's sort of like dumbed down, but also really likable. And uh, John Favreau hasn't had a whole lot of these these movies where he actually has a chance to actually give a good performance. Can and John so... Favreau look tired though? Kevin Kevin Spacey looks tired in this movie. John Favreau just is tired. I yeah, mean I that's just is. his that's just his regular look. You guys haven't seen Swingers. Alright, I've got I've got two picks for this. One's kind of a gimmick pick and one's one's my real pick. So my gimmick pick goes to one of my conspiracy theories. My conspiracy theory is Sam in this movie is really just Williamson. And he's advanced up to this point. And so if that's the case, and we're talking about 20 years after Glenn Gary Williamson is there, then this role would be played by Nikki Cat because this was tw about 20 years mm -hmm. or no, about 11 years. Was it 11 years after? Uh, no, now would be 20 years after Boiler Room. So Nikki Cat would be playing it. That's a Terry recasting. Um, but but my actual pick is John Cusack. I could see that, too. Yeah. Yeah, for very similar to the to the Favreau pick, but I, I could see I could see. I mean, I anytime know. you mention Nicky Cat, I'm I'm okay with it. I, I could see Cusack sitting in his office crying about his dog dying. <laughs> <laughs> I th I could see him making a top five list of people he'd want fired from the firm. Yeah, or he'd be like, "Hey, dog, let's work it out." Whatever. Okay, John. But it's not shot in Chicago, and Joan Cusack couldn't be in the movie, so. John Toll, played by Jeremy Irons. Zach. Oh, this was my favorite pick of my 70s recasting. Okay, we're talking over-the-top characters who fly in 
on a helicopter, <laughs> make great speeches, make great promises that they can't make, can't fulfill. They make $86 million a year. Listen, there's only one of two actors you could go with from the 70s for this. One of them was Marlon Brando. I didn't want this project tanked. I went with Orson Welles. <laughs> Both of those are really good. Those are the, they're the only ones you could go with from the 70s. I like that. That's awesome. Todd, who do you have? I had two written down. One would be like the closest thing to Jeremy Irons. He'd get his uh, Ray Fiennes. Yes. Uh, yeah. But the one I actually wanted to go with was Bob Odenkirk. Because there's something about him that just screams like, I'm the most buttoned up person in this room. And uh, I don't care what anyone thinks, but like I'm the boss. Like That's Bob Odenkirk. Bob Odenkirk should be in this 2021 recasting. I would put I would cast him as Sam, though. Not yeah, old. he's a better Sam. He's too old, though. He's like 60 plus. I think Sam is pretty old in this movie, man. Kevin Spacey was 52 when he... When? He's got a grown son on Wall Street and a, and a divorced wife. All right, my, my pick. Like that's that's about right. Yeah, but he they made. He's been at the firm look, for thirty four years. Old. You're telling me he's worked there since he was eighteen years old. They tried to make him look old. Oh yeah, yeah, gray hair, I guess. Yeah, not like all the money in the world old, but old. Um, my pick for John was Gary Oldman. Mm, that's good. In yeah. that in that case, you might as well go with like Andy Circus, you know. Like th that'd be another interesting guy to just fly in. Speaking <laughs> of all the money in the world, how the did same you, neither me. of you recast Sam as Christopher Plummer? R.I.P. That's why. Sam, <laughs> Sam's like present day. Like 90. <laughs> I don't know. Or was all 90. right. Uh Jared, played by Simon Baker. Zach. Easy, easy. We're going Robert Redford. Perfect uh, Robert Redford cast casting in the seventies. Any seventies recasting, we have to have Robert Redford in the, in the cast. Yeah, I think he's. I mean, how old was Robert Redford in the seventies? Dude, I don't know. I think he was a little it, too young. I, I, I want to say Robert like Redford was born in nineteen thirty-two, so that would make him forty-three in nineteen seventy-five. Don't make right him what eighty now? He's not eighty, is he? He is. A, I believe he was born in nineteen thirty-two. Let me look. All right, let me look you that. you and your numbers, man. I... <laughs> Robert Redford was born in thirty-six. My bad. Yeah, nineteen thirty-six. I was close. Right decade. You were close. Yeah, it so started he's, with he's, an S. He's too young. He's too young to be that role. That still would have worked. Depending on when in the seventies it was. Todd, who do you have? Um, uh, I had John Krasinski. I mean, th that role is a really, he's a really arrogant character and a, a guy who looks like he's, he should be in it over his head, but you could tell like where he actually stands in the company. John Krasinski has that, that kind of persona. No, John Krasinski's a Peter, man. I mean, he's too old at this point to play Peter. I know. But... Yeah. So if, if Peter was, you know, 10 years older, don't you think that'd be a Jared? No. No, I, I disagree with that. I think you got to go with someone glamorous. I think like Leo is maybe someone I would cast. Simon Baker is not glamorous. Oh, are you kidding? I, I mean, listen, I you know. Not I, by name it, necessarily, but he, he definitely brings. He looks uh, phenomenal in that movie. And yeah. I got to say, I mean, the, I, we're getting out of our element here. but Obviously, obviously it's the hardest role to recast. We already said this. I mean, John Krasinski is the only thing I'd come up with. I don't. No, you, I think you misinterpreted it. Terry, who's your pick? Okay, I've got two. Um, the first one, 
if he wasn't canceled, this is an army hammer roll. <laughs> is that is that just something you're going to do every every? No, 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 no. But no, no. no but seriously, I, I mean, no, the, 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 this is an army Patrick hammer Wilson. roll. It kind of it, it's it's better than John Krasinski. But the other the other one I had where I could see just the, the that's a good army hammer roll. Damn it, it is. Yeah, I know. And but the other one that I had, it's a little outside the box, but I could see him being able to pull off the suave of Jared, and that's Hayden Christensen. Yeah, let's stick with our let's stick with Army Hammer. Both of those are pretty good. I mean, yeah, John Krasinski wasn't ideal. I honestly don't. It's it's not an easy role. <laughs> it's the hardest role to recast. That that is for sure. It is because it's not necessarily the acting chops; it's the look. Mm-hmm. You have to have the right look. You have to wear that tie. You have to mm-hmm. wear that suit. You yeah, have to it's, do it's the shaving you carry scene. yourself. Like yes. that is Simon Baker's whole career since LA Confidential. That is Simon Baker. Yeah, yeah. It, was, it had to have been written for him. I've always loved Simon Baker. All right. Uh, the last one I have on my list is Eric, played yeah, by Stanley it. Tucci. Uh, Zach, who do you have? The 70s recasting him with Charles Grodin. Oh, was I he even acting in the 70s? Was he on like <laughs> SNL or something? No, he was in the Honeymoon he, Kid. He he hosted oh, SNL one time in the 70s. Disgruntled employee. That's perfect. Todd, who'd you pick? I don't think Stan Titch is exactly disgruntled. disgruntled. I, I said Brendan Fraser. Because wow. I don't think we've ever mentioned him on one of these, but like he has that kind of that aura about him where he is misunderstood by all of his coworkers, and he's the good guy, but he's not really looked at as the good guy behind the scenes. I, I think Brendan Fraser would kill that kind of role, and plus he needs to have a resurgence other than playing like a seven hundred pound person in the Darren Aronofsky movie coming out next year. Okay, I don't know. I'd have to see it. Um, you don't think that would work? It could. It could. I, work. It, I feel like I think you're a the, bigger Brendan Fraser fan than I am. I think yeah. it's the easiest role to recast. That's why I didn't include it in my original yeah. list. I think a lot of people could play that role. I think. I think Stanley Tucci. I don't know if it's necessarily an easy role to recast because it's Stanley Tucci. Like I think Stanley. Well, Tucci he's would great. Still, I think he would still yeah. play it today. Yeah, um, agreed. Or J.K. Simmons, because I think he's played that role for the last ten years. Over and over and over again. Maybe like, the last is... fifteen years. Like I mean, this is really a thing that he has done a lot. Mm-hmm. Like and he's, since and he's Devil Wears Prada, kind of. You know. Have we yeah. done a power rankings of the best scenes where someone gets fired? Because this would be very high on the list. It would just be all up in the air and this movie. And right? this movie, yeah, those would be the top. I two. don't know. I think Philip Seymour Hoffman and Charlie and Wilson Charlie Wilson's board. Those would be the yeah. It's too <laughs> easy a list to make. <laughs> Well, I did do a top 10 of one point of like people losing their jobs or quitting their jobs. Like I, I remember doing that. Oh yeah. Cuz like wasn't number 1 Fight Club. That that was tied for number 1 with like something. I don't I don't remember what my number 1 was, but I know I had Jerry Maguire on there for sure. Oh yeah, that had <laughs> yeah. to be on there. Yeah. Okay. Uh for Eric, I've got two. They're n- not gimmick. It's just like I have an I I had two I want to mention. So my number two pick is Billy Crudup, who I can see pull this roll yeah. off. But my number one pick is Michael Stuhlbarg. Oh, that's great. Oh. Okay, that's perfect. That's that's not yeah. gonna be topped. Yeah, that's it's over. <laughs> it's over. Drop. You might as well just throw your mic on the floor. Not even don't even drop it. Just throw it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. 
Uh, who would Nicholas Cage play? John Toll, obviously. Yeah, that's that's the only thing I wrote down too. I wrote down Sam. I could see him play Sam. Oh, it depends on the it depends on the director. It depends on the way the movie, what direction the movie, the remake would want to go in. But yeah, who's got the highest war in this, Todd? Don't let me. We said it. It's Simon Baker. Like, I think it's the best performance in the movie. I think it's the the hardest to recast because. Simon Baker oozes that role with every role that he's ever played. This is, it had, I'm telling you, it had to have been written for him. There's no other actor in that age range at that time that I could ever put in that role that would be perfect like Simon Baker is. I don't know if it was written for him, but I think they may have just found the perfect casting. Like, cause yeah, you're right. He walks in and you know, and like you said, it's been his whole career. Like you go, like you said, go back to LA Confidential. I mean, we love to watch the Guardian that was another great it was a great tv show um and then and then he had the mentalist as well i'm i'm surprised he never caught on how did he never catch on i'm sure he is a several a million or several times over because of the mentalist (laughs) like oh yeah yeah that show i never watched it but i mean that show is huge and plus he was in land of the dead when we can ding the thing for that another oh yeah Yeah, there it is again (laughs) here we go will ferrell shout out no. So, <laughs> <laughs> no, Dennis Hopper, right? Isn't it Simon Baker and Dennis Hopper? Oh yeah, and John Leguizamo. Yeah, yeah. All right. Uh, my pick for highest war. Uh, I had Simon Baker written down, but the second one I had written down was Stanley Tucci, just because mm-hmm. he is this part and he has played this part. Like, I, I watched that nine eleven movie Worth. It he plays the same part in that movie, like that was almost a smart exactly. Movie. That was a smart movie. No, he 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 is that role. He's done that role over and over again. And he can do other things, but he has perfected that that character. And and so I had a hard time recasting that just because he's so good at it. Zach, what do you got? I like it. Uh, they're all uh, they're all untouchable. You can't recast any of them. This was a fruitless exercise. However, if I really had to go with one, I'm going to go with Paul Bettany. I don't I I don't see a lot of great recastings for him. Maybe in 2011 you could have gone with Jude Law, but Ooh. I, I, I think he's that would have been a little too role. pretentious and unlikable. Like Paul Bettany is pretty likable in this. That's well, why I, I think he gives off a likable guy. But but really beneath him, he has that great speech in the car about oh we weren't really responsible. It was everybody else that was responsible. They they were all hypocrites and they bought in the system too. It's a great speech. It he's amazing in that movie and he gives some great speeches, especially about how he delegates the money that he makes every year and he has a semi suicide attempt. Uh, he's awesome. He was but, never going to actually jump. He just wanted the thrill. But yeah, James McAvoy is a terrible recasting, by the way. You said that was good that. like a half an hour I, I, ago. I'm thinking more about it. I think it's the more and more I think about it, the worse and worse it gets. He doesn't have to be British. JGL. That's, that's I think he is. has to be JGL. British I, because he says he gives money back to his parents in the homeland. Yeah. So that doesn't mean Hawaii? Like, that could mean a lot of things. <laughs> He gives he gives one hundred and fifty thousand dollars back home. He says, which is also the same that he spends on his car, which is curious because does that mean he buys a new car every year? Yeah, that I mean, yeah, that seems like what he says. I, I mean, he probably, had a really bitching car, and that yeah. A... 
All right. Um, Do you know what I didn't catch this this time? I did not catch it last time. I caught it this time. I did not realize he was Stanley Tucci's boss until watching it this time. What? That was really fascinating. How how did you not understand that? Like I don't know. I don't know. But that, 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 there was that, a clear boom, boom, agreed. boom, boom in the hierarchy. That's what agreed. I love about the movie. Agreed. I just thought I didn't know what their relationship was, but I I didn't catch that line until this time. But I think it <laughs> it, it perfectly sets up the movie. You completely blocked out the nightclub scene. <laughs> well, no, I didn't. I didn't block out the nightclub scene. The nightclub well, scene. That's is what he says. He's he like, just wasn't listening. To go to go to my boss's boss and tell him I need to go back to the. <laughs> I had missed. I had missed that part, but that is that is fascinating. Okay. All right, worst performance time. Oh. Uh, I'm going with Demi Moore. Um, and it, it's it's not it it's not because it's the the only woman in the cast and it's and it's a poorly written role. It's not the only woman. I, I just don't uh, think the meme. I just really. Well, I just don't think the meme more is that Yeah, I just don't think the meme is that good of an actress. Yeah. And I it, I mean we, that was the only I thing I wrote down too. Disagree. She is like. She I mean, she had I mean she had a moment in the early '90s with a couple films. She's and doing Joan. She's playing Joan in this, and it doesn't work. She's like, trying well, to, yeah, she's trying to play Joan from A Few Good Men. And you don't really understand where she stands in the company because you like she never makes it clear like where she stands. Like, but she's just trying to like whine for her job, and it's a really ugly performance. I think it's the only bad performance in the movie. Yeah, it, it it's it's the one moment you're watching the movie and then you go, wait, Demi Moore, and and that's that's the one thing that takes you out of it. I agree. Zach, obviously you don't. No, I think she. Listen, I think she's kind of rocking it in this movie. Uh, I, you know, I think she's awesome. This was a good Demi Moore thing. You, you like the you like career. the you like the scenes where she's not in, but her character has a part in it, like Jennifer Connelly and Little Children something i do think uh jennifer connelly could have been recast in this role i'm surprised neither of you brought that up but uh there's no bad we didn't recast that one and we you didn't give the rest of your recast oh yeah oh yeah i i did i did recast in the 1970s sarah as Anne bancroft that's way she's way too old and i went with peter's (laughs) ex-girlfriend from the deleted scenes as meryl streep and directed by Sidney lumet obviously or adam packer though yeah, there's Alan. um, I, there's no I bad say, Adam. I'm an idiot. <laughs> there's no, there's no bad performance in this movie. I guess I don't know if I had to go with a bad performance. Maybe it's uh, Jimmy Palumbo as the security guard. He's just kind of standing there, not doing a whole lot. There's no bad. It, it's it's more a reflection of how strong this cast is that I can't name any of the main characters. Yeah, it, it's probably the. It might be the best ensemble cast of the 2010s. I've, and yes. I and I don't hard pressed to find some an, another movie that could could make that claim. Didn't we do a um, a list of the best ensemble? Besides cast Uncut Gems, did we? Did. What are our, our power rankings? Yeah, I'll I'll, I'll look it up. I'll look it up. All right. We got to keep rolling, though. Amazing Larry, Big Tim, High Roller, minor character of the movie. <laughs> well, this Zach. is hard. I guess I'm going to go with uh, Al Spinaza as Carmelo, who is the guy who is uh, John Told's security. He, he just tells him Carmelo will find um, Eric. 
And uh, uh, ultimately, he does. He drives up in the limo. But I, I guess I want to know more about Carmelo and why his name is Carmelo. All this right, is a stupid we, category. Okay, I found it. We did an ensemble cast of the de- of the decade. We did, and, yeah. And Todd had margin call number three, and Zach had it number two. There Son we go, bitch. I didn't have a number one. What did I have number one? You I had mean... fences number one. No, oh, that's a stupid. Good fences number that was one. A really good pick. Carnage number two. Oh, okay. okay. Margin I mean, call actually, number really three. Four people in that movie, man. You had parasite number four and the master number five. Okay, I mean, I, I stand list? by my list. Zach, I mean, your list was number five. You had certain women. Uh, number four, you had nymphomaniac. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> number even, three, even Zach knows that's ridiculous. Number three, you no had comment. inside Lewin Davis. Number two, margin call. Number one, parasite. We were we were definitely in the post parasite. You know, <laughs> yeah, this yeah. was a very January twenty twenty list. Adam Adam had number five spotlight, number four fury, number three contagion, number two place beyond the pines, and number one wolf of Wall Street. Mm. And my list was number five nocturnal animals, and I remember you guys were like, "Oh man, that was an awesome pick." Uh, number four, I had Avengers: Infinity War. Number three, The Irishman. Number two, uh, Three Billboards, and number one, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. So you were the one that didn't have Parasite, but you had two 2019 movies. I, I feel like we might have talked about that on that podcast. <laughs> and you had Parasite but... high, higher than any of us on our on your top 100. Yep. That was a great power ranking. Like, <laughs> more of that shit. <laughs> I remember your Nocturnal Animals pick. That was out of nowhere. That was a great it was. pick. And it, it, it was a great pick. Army Hammer. There's another I Army stand by my pick. list, but I, I probably would say Margin Call is at least number two. But Fences probably is number one. All right. Well, who's your minor character of Margin Call, Todd? Uh, I wrote down Heather Burke. Uh, she's only in like the first like, maybe 10 minutes or so, but she's like the the one that's like the good cop to the bad, like when they're firing people. Because mm-hmm. uh, uh, like, I don't know, she's really nice when they're firing people and she seems completely like comfortable with her job. And it's like, I mean, she's not as cold as she probably should have been. But she's also, I think it's funny that she screws it up early when she, like, uh, thinks that Zachary Quinto is Stanley Tucci. It's like this little, like, quirky thing that would totally happen and, like, completely freak out everybody around and be like, wait, like, they're firing our boss, but not us? Like, what what the hell is going on? I, I like that character, and she plays it really innocently, and uh, she should be in more stuff. I, I haven't seen her in that much stuff. I looked at her list, and it's not that, not that many things. Heather Burke, I, I can't remember the actress. It's something Williams. Uh, she was the wife of the producer on the movie. Ashley Williams. The wife of what producer? Like I know Zachary Quinto was a producer. No, not not Zachary hey. Quinto. It was in the it, the comment the commentary had Oh uh, Victoria from How I Met Your Mother. I didn't even make that connection. Dude, I swear. <laughs> Wait, which producer are you talking about? I don't know. The one There's who gave like, the commentary with with J. A. Adonde. No, JC. She Chandler. has been she's been married to yeah. Neil Dodson since Neil Dodson, that's it. Neil Dodson. Well she she married him I, in twenty eleven, so they may have met on the making of the movie. I also when I saw what her the actress's name was, I also thought like that'd be a really good Allison Williams. Yes, um, that's a good call. All right, but, I mean, my, she's Ashley Williams and she was really good too. My favorite minor character is the janitor that stands between Simon yes. Baker and Demi Moore in the elevator. She knows all the inside information. <laughs> she could go public with that shit. 
I thought what I thought was funny though is if you if you listen to it, they're totally aware of the fact that they're standing in between mm-hmm. or that, that they have someone in between them and they are that is the vaguest conversation of the entire movie. And it's it, but they know exactly what they're talking about the entire time. It, it's it's brilliant. That 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 scene is brilliant because yeah. They they know they're know how, how long Jason Chandler wrote this screenplay to like because I mean this is his thing. I don't know how, how long he prepared this because I mean, yeah, there, there are so many times like that throughout the movie that you just watch and be like, man, that is brilliant how we put that together. It's genius. Years. It it must have been years. <clears throat> He probably was the Zachary Quinto character at some point. He probably was a rocket scientist, and he's like, 10 years later, he's like, okay, I finally perfected this one thing. <laughs> I'm going to be a movie. Terry, make how, a movie. how was your trivia not including his major in college or his oh, PhD thesis title, whatever? The, that, I should have had that. That would have been a great question. What did he go to? He went to there, like... Uh, MIT. He, yeah, Wayne. He got... But he got his, or something. Yeah, Penn. Yeah, Penny is where he got his bachelor's. Yeah, yeah. I I, I, I love that. that scene where he's like, yeah, and then Great Sam Bigger's like, "So you're a rocket scientist?" He's like, "I, I was, I was I too was. invested in the scene to be writing down <laughs> trivia questions. That's what happened." <laughs> I know. When we do these things, it takes me like you know at least one point five times the length of the movie to watch it because I'm like, okay, I gotta write. That's down. why. That's why half to two thirds of my trivia questions usually end up happening in the first 10 to 15 minutes of the movie because that's what i'm thinking about it did you notice some of the parallels between finding eric dale and finding ken mattingly in the middle of the night terry (laughs) good you're not dead that's what they should have said when they walked up (laughs) it was no longer the middle of the night though like that was that was what they had to be like 7 a.m or something well listen i I have some conspiracy theories about where eric was yeah i mean he had to have been like they had to have been right like he had to have been like going out to a strip club or something they just went to the wrong one they were just like all right we're already drunk it's like the 3 (laughs) a.m like why not just stay here like he had to have been out because otherwise like why would he be walking in like not not being like you know uh, well, and he didn't have a cell phone. He destroyed his cell phone, so there is no presence of him anywhere. They couldn't have turned it, back on his cell phone in the middle of the night. Like th- that cell phone meant nothing at that point. I don't know. All right, well, what's next, Terry? Great. All right, next is uh, Stickman and Douchebag. I'll oh. go first on this. So my Stickman, it's obviously Simon Baker, right? Obviously. I mean that this is like like we could rename this as Simon Baker Stickman. Yes, I think we should. <laughs> the Simon Spider Stickman. The, the Simon Spider. The Simon Spider Meredith Stickman. <laughs> Here's the real question: Did he bang Demi Moore in this movie? In this movie, no. Uh, yeah, Five years know. ago, yes. I don't know. I think that is one of the sources of their antagonism in this movie. Well, no, that's what I'm saying. During the during the 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 during this movie, like the the process of what's going on in this movie, no. Have they banged? Absolutely. I don't know what that answer meant, but I, I think that that <laughs> character and her character had sex at some point. 
That's what I yes. meant. Yes. <laughs> Not <laughs> actually Simon Bay. Demi Moore no, is no, married I, to Ashton Kutcher, man. She she's a loyal that, person. She's not. No, that's not a thing okay. anymore. But but no, I'm saying in the 24 hours this movie takes place. No, I don't think they sex. had sex in the 24 hours. No, that's <laughs> that, that's movie. what I'm saying. Yeah. When you said did they have sex during this movie? That's a great conspiracy theory. After they got off the elevator with the with the maid, they went to have sex. I wouldn't have thought of that, man. That's genius. But he wouldn't have shaved after that. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe that's his thing. <laughs> it's a little inexplicable. They seem a little antagonistic, but maybe that's that, that's how they get it off. Maybe that's their thing, you know? God, All right. We're, we're, we're off rails, man. All right. Billy Bats douchebag. I decided. Wait, my, my on... stick, man. I said Oh, yeah. Go ahead. What? I said Seth because, mm. I mean, it reminds me of the character in Suits, like the main character played by uh, Michael. He's a horrible douche. Something. Are you are, are you kidding me that he's, he's a stick, stick man? man? Why wouldn't he be? He's like a twenty five year old like Wall Street small. guy who makes a shit ton of money. He so, that's that's a horrible pick. He's he's the wor- he's the worst stick man in this movie. S- Sam gets it in more than him, and Sam's divorced and has a more dead dog. Set? No, you're wrong. Like no, the, the the worst is uh is Zachary Quinto. I think he's getting it in. He's got you know, listen, he's dating Meryl Streep's uh second daughter, who is a bartender, apparently Whatever. according to the commentary. Okay, let's move on. Zach Zach's, <laughs> Zach's out of his element. Yeah, Zach Zach, what what did you have for sick man? Oh, sick oh, obviously, obviously uh, Jared. Well yeah, I mean okay. I mean Jared's a good yeah. answer to him. Yeah. All right. Uh for uh douchebag, what I decided to go with is Kind of everyone in this movie is a douche, douchebag, so I went with yeah. the the least douchey of them. Um, mm. But um, so I went with the the yeah the opposite, but um, shows great potential, uh, and that's a that's a Zachary Quinto <laughs> character. I, I mean, I think it should at, be a it should be a rule though that the most douchey is always everybody on Wall Street because. That's what we said during Boiler Room, and that's what we're gonna say during <laughs> the Wolf of Wall Street. It's uh, every uh, every character involved in everything is the most mm. douchey. <laughs> Pretty but, much. Okay, keep, keep going, Terry. No, that 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 was it. Zachary Quinto is uh, is the least douchey, but uh, shows a uh, shows great potential for um, structure, or down, structure the line, down the line. I think. Yeah. <laughs> I think. <laughs> All right, Todd. Uh well I wrote down Seth and Will. Uh I mean Will Will is definitely a douchebag. The way he talks about ev- like everybody and everything makes him seem like a douchebag, especially how he spends his money. I mean I mean that 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 just goes down like the fact that he actually knows the the dollar figures of how much he spent on I mean I have it written down. What are all the things that he says hookers and uh taxman mortgage Tax mortgage to <laughs> what he sends to his parents out of respect. Rainy uh, day, four hundred k in the rainy day. Car, uh, how much he spends in restaurants, which was like almost hundred grand. <laughs> that was realistic, though. <laughs> I think for clothes, New York City, uh, the four hundred away for a rainy day. That's a valid uh, point, New York City. And, yeah, yeah, and and hookers, booze, and re- and dancers. Like, yeah, that that is as douchey of a monologue as you're ever going to get. But it was also <laughs> absolutely fantastic. <laughs> And he's gonna kill himself because he knows his job is he he's over and he can't spend the money on booze and hookers anymore. Well, the That's, problem that in is, itself is douchey. The issue is that yes, he, he know that he knows his life is douchey, but he also isn't a douchebag because he tells Seth like 
Yes, absolutely. You're getting fired. Yes. I'm sorry guys. that this is happening to you, but this is going to happen. He could have he could have tried to sugarcoat it and then like let him get like the bad news like a like two like a day and a half later, but it's like like no dude, you like you're screwed. <laughs> it's gonna suck for a while, but you're gonna get a lot of money. So yeah. just do it. Like that is not a juicy thing to do, but that's the only thing holding it back. Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. Zach? Oh, uh, everybody's a douchebag in this movie, with the exception of Zachary Quinto and maybe Kevin Spacey. Except Kevin Spacey is a douchebag because he actually takes the money. So I think that... I don't know, Tucci, you could say, might might be... But he takes the money, too. He goes back to the firm and takes their package. I think he's he's pretty douchey. the, The most douchey character is obviously Jeremy Irons. I mean, the, the dude flies in on a helicopter. He doesn't know. He says, talk to me like you would a six-year-old or a golden retriever. Or I, <laughs> well, I think he's young an child. asshole. I don't know if he's actually a, a $86 dude. million dollars a year, man. I, that's that's pretty douchey. But he, he no he, longer he, is he, worth a billion dollars. He has the audacity to eat. You know, he, he it's not a big deal to him because it's just like 1987, just like 1934. I mean, he's the biggest douche of the movie by far in a movie full of douches because he just knows that the cycle is going to, 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 to you know, uh, repeat itself. And he doesn't even bother to actually understand the way that Wall Street works. I mean, that's one of the things I love about this movie is that no one understands anything except for Zachary Quinto. He's the only one who can read those graphs. And Tucci. And Tucci. Yeah, that's true. Well, and and Seth to an extent. Uh, to an extent, I think Seth is more interested in booze and hookers. Well, like, yeah, when 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 he shows back up, he was already drunk, and he's like, "Wait, whoa, whoa, what am I like? Is this real?" <laughs> you know. I feel like Seth should have is is a more appropriate character for a movie like Superbad than this movie. But, <laughs> but he also is like the. He started in. Super he's the junior analyst. No one even remembers his name. <laughs> he's like, "Who is that? What's his name?" <laughs> Well, he's also like the 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 one character in Mad Men. I can't even remember his name right now because I'm a little drunk. But what's that? Um, <laughs> I'm the one, the one doing his job. You must be the other guy. Uh, I, I mean, it's uh. Wait, hold on, give me a second. Uh, <laughs> Pete Campbell. There you go. He's like oh. the Pete Campbell of the movie. Yeah, yeah, that's fair. Do you, Do you think Zachary Quinto ever pulled a pulled a Mark Wahlberg and said, "I'm the guy doing his job. You must be the other guy," to Seth? Or is he too nice for Yes. Him? I no. think he's too nice. He says, No, he, he would nice do night, that. Man. He's a rocket he says good, scientist. He says good night to everybody at the office. He's like, chill, man. Have a good have a good night, man. That that's the John he's obviously John Krasinski if we're gonna recast this. Except John Krasinski is a little old. If this if yeah. John Krasinski, John Krasinski would have been a great yeah, alternative I just, I just to Zachary like that, Quinto at the time. I blew Todd's mind with the Anthony Perkins pick. That's all. Oh, listen, I mean, that, yeah, that, I mean, is, that, that is what I'm taking away from this podcast. That's, that's perfect. That's, yeah. All right. Best scene. Best so scene in the movie. Picks. So Zach. many. Oh, wow. Where do we begin? Uh, so many great scenes. If I had to go with one, I can't pick a Kevin Spacey scene. Uh, but both of his speeches are great. I guess I would go with... By the way, I almost said Kevin Spacey was the worst performance. He would have been my second behind Demi Moore. 
Kevin Spacey's amazing in this movie, though. Everybody is. It's horrible but it's his best performance. He should have been nominated. It's not his best performance. He's amazing, but yeah. Yeah, his speech at the end is is amazing. I'm going to go with the, 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 the rocket scientist scene. The scene where they, the, the first uh, meeting yeah. where they're talking to Jared and what are your what's your cv what's oh well you know he's got a, he's he's a freaking rocket scientist and man just an amazing scene total one-upmanship total like subliminal and then you got spacey talking to demi moore you knew about this i i came to you last year about this you got the total like freak out scene but it's like mannered and then you got the great moment where kevin spacey's like are you gonna call him you're gonna call him and then the perfect response by uh, simon baker i already have great moment Phenomenal scene, but so many great scenes to choose from. You can't pick a bad scene but, in this movie. Well, yeah, I mean that's the scene where you have the whole powerhouse cast, <laughs> like yeah. all doing their thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, my pick is going to be the the one scene I remember from the first time I watched this, and that is the scene with Paul Bettany and Stanley Tucci sitting on the the steps of his house mm -hmm. after they find yes. him. Yes. Yep. Great. And, great scene. Yeah, and after after the the full all nighter that they've pulled, and they find Stanley Tucci finally, and they sit down and they're like, "Okay, what's going on? Oh, this is what's going on." Like, yeah, that's about right. That's probably what needed to happen. And and then the whole the whole talk about the bridge and and what it means to make a difference and all this stuff. And it, it it's a brilliant scene. And yeah, that is the one scene I remember vividly from the first time I watched this movie. What I love Good about call. that scene the most is that is is that subtle moment where uh, Eric looks at the car and he sees Seth standing there, and the look on his face is like a subtle like, "What the f is he doing here?" <laughs> like the camera does the same thing. It's like pans over to him. It's like, and then he's just like, "Oh, I'm yeah." <laughs> it's like, I, I I love that scene too. That's a great call. I also I also like the the subtle. I, I don't remember if it's after they get there, or if it's while they're on their way there, where where Paul Bettany just goes, Ugh, "I hate Brooklyn." Yep. That that that's a that's a great moment too. But yeah. All right, Todd. What's your what's your best scene? I'm gonna have a few written down. I mean, and basically anything with Simon Baker is great. Uh, the the scene on the rooftop I love, but the one I'm gonna talk about is. The one where Peter first finds out about everything on the computer and then he calls Seth, who's at like the nightclub, and they come back up and they find out it's it's like subtle enough to know what he's talking about, but it it's it's like it doesn't talk down to the audience at all. And which is something I love, which is something like social network-ish about this, where it's like it, it, it treats the audience like they are actually an equal to the writers. And it's things like that and the scene that Zach mentioned for sure. Like, it's just like this breathless scene that is like, shit's about to go down. And the rest of the hour and 15 or hour and 20 minutes of the movie are just uh, amazing after that. But that, that's the scene that sets the tone because that's the first time you're just like, oh, shit. Hmm. I, lo I love that scene. Great call. That's a great scene. Yeah. And, and honestly, if I was going to say another one, it would be Kevin Spacey's last... Uh... Yeah. Last speech kind of prepping oh my the God. next day. What a great and, yeah. and also because you got great. Simon Baker standing in the doorway making sure he's and gonna the, do his job. And the lawyer, the little lawyer behind him too, making sure. Yeah. Mm -hmm. That is a great speech. 
Also, the it, it bookends really well with his first speech that he yeah, gives, but which is complete, just bull. Like the entire oh. that entire speech is complete crap. Yeah, and he the, knows the it. Yeah. And I love knows about it. that speech is that like I can't imagine being up all night and then going back into work and giving a speech. Mm-hmm. And that is the speech of somebody who's just like, all oh, right, I, I've spent like the last like nine hours thinking about what I'm going to say, but I'm uh, too tired to actually do it the way I want to. I'm just going to just go out there and do it. Yeah. And like, it's it's a fantastic speech by Kevin Spacey. And I mean, and that seems so realistic. And I don't know. It, we, we do that in our everyday lives. We give that speech, we you do. know, like. I know that speech. I've given that speech before. Mm-hmm. It's a great speech. And and the way that he takes off his glasses and he plays with his pinky finger, finger it, it it's an amazing moment. It's just, it's sad that we can't appreciate Kevin Spacey because this is a phenomenal performance. It's his best, it's the best performance of his career. Clearly, by far. I mean, that's not, that's not exactly true, but I mean, it's, I mean, we're, like obviously we love his movies. Like I think we mentioned like six of his movies on our top 100s. Like, but this is this is one of those movies where it's like he is actually part of a cast. Yeah, and he is every bit as good as the rest of his amazing cast. Similar to Glenn Gary Glenn Ross, I guess. But that speech, yeah. Yeah. Okay. I, maybe we'll get into conspiracy theories. There's no way that 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 floor reached 93 percent, right? Zero percent chance. Well, it depend. I mean, they skip they, ahead they a lot of a lot of times because Kevin Spacey said earlier that if we get to sixty five percent by one p.m., we'll be we'll be in a good place. And there's no way they they reach their bonuses. Well, I, I don't know. I don't know. He didn't say sixty five percent. He said sixty five cents on the dollar. Right? Sixty five cents on the dollar. I guess that's true. Yeah, I mean, it depends on how much they were actually selling at the higher prices early on. They they skip around a lot. You really don't know. By the way, that's a great also also great best scene candidate is that sequence during the day when they just have it play over the audio, and it's just like gradual. Like, okay, I'll take it. Okay, what what's going on there? Okay, f- you what your assholes like that gr- beautiful filmmaking by JC. Well, I I never thought Paul Bettany was going to be one making calls though like during that like that's true they, and they, then kevin they were Spacey gets about, on the line they were talking to all the salesmen and it was like i never thought that their boss's boss's boss was going to be well, one uh, like somebody actually calling other people and it, it, it just shows how much they had to just pull out all the stops for that yeah they, they had to call their their best guys at that point to in order to liquidate even part of what they had mm-hmm. and i mean and that's a great portrayal of what actually was going on all right. Normally we talk about if there were a sequel. I don't know if that's even necessary here. Well, Danny... I kind of like I kind of like a prequel of like any of those people in their daily jobs. Like I want to yes. know what Simon Baker's actual job was, like what he did in his his normal life, or or Jeremy Irons for sure. Like like well, there's least... a lot of those people. I, I would love the building the bridge. Of that. that 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 was going to be my prequel. Was <laughs> oh. building a bridge in yes. 1985 or whatever. Yeah. That would make a great movie. I agree. I agree. Oh, Mac Jones just threw a pick six down, up one with two and a half minutes left. That sucks. <laughs> Mac Jones is the LVP of this podcast. Yeah, pretty much. Okay. 
uh, flaws, outdated conspiracy theories. All right, I'll go first because I actually have some this time. I never have anything for this, but I actually have some. So first, I already said my conspiracy theory, and that is that Sam is Williamson uh, from Glengarry Glen Ross, and he's just he's just made it this far, and he's worked his way up to here. And my flaw, here's my flaw. My flaw is there is no way that security guard, if he was actually doing his job, would have let Stanley yeah. Tucci hand over a thumb yes. drive of data Agreed. to Zachary Quinto on his way out the door. I mean, yeah, that's, that's his true. whole point. Yeah. That's his whole purpose. His purpose is to make sure that doesn't happen. I wrote that down, too. Yeah, that's a good call. But the movie and, doesn't and it's happen. Like, it's like the that. crux of the entire movie. If that moment doesn't happen, the movie doesn't happen. Well, but he could have easily just emailed that to him. No, because he didn't have it. He didn't have it. Like, the fact that he took that showed that the security guard was not doing his job. I see. But my only, my retort to that would be that the security guard didn't give a shit. He was not making a lot of money. He he didn't really care about this job. It was sort of a part-time gig. Didn't matter. I mean, that that's a valid point, too. All right, what do you guys got? I nothing haven't said already. <laughs> My only flaw conspiracy theory was um, so uh, Will, played by um, Paul Bettany, no one knows where Eric lives, but Will knows that Eric had bought a new house in Brooklyn. So how does he not know where Will lives? Is my is my question. I think he knows where he lives. He just he just knew he wasn't home because they called home already. Yeah, they called his wife. Yeah. I guess I I yeah I don't know. And then I just had a few random points I wanted to add. Demi Demi Moore and Mary McDonald both look fine in this movie. And then I'm just gonna move ahead, move to the next point. <laughs> <laughs> Carry on. I got nothing. You got nothing? No. Nothing? No No flaws, outdated conspiracy theories? No, I mean, I said everything I was going to say. How did okay. you not ask about the top grossing movies of 2011 in your trivia question, Terry? I was prepared for that shit. I was ready for Paranormal Activity 3 or Real Steel. <laughs> I was going to, like, maybe the other nominees for Best Original Screenplay or something. Oh, yeah, that would have been a good one, too. I should have asked for that, but I didn't. All right, time to wrap this up. LVP, MVP, Todd. Well, the LVP for me is like the salaries they pay rocket scientists that they're like those, <laughs> they're gonna actually go work on Wall Street instead as like an entry level employee. <laughs> like, I don't know, what are you doing? Uh, base and uh, the MVP. I mean, I I guess I'll go with Eric Dale because he he has the foresight to see everything that's going ahead like way farther than Jeremy Irons' character, which who says like, that's his actual job. That's the only reason he makes, you know, hundred million a year or whatever the hell he makes is like to see when the music actually stops and project what's going on. Like, no, Eric Dale saw it and he's like, all right, I'm going to do this. I'm just not smart enough to actually figure it all out. Yeah. Eric Dale's the MVP. Patriots just threw like a 75 yard touchdown pass to take the lead back. Wow. Just thrown. Matt Mac is now the MVP of this podcast. I know. I know. All right. Uh, my LVP is is uh, Seth 
Have you ever seen someone ride the coattails of what's going on more than like Seth had no business. Like he was just like, what? What well, the he, hell? Yeah, dude, that's what I was saying. That That's what Eric Dale saw. He's like, why? Why is he here? <laughs> <laughs> like, why? Why is he part of this? And, and like even part of it, like Will's like, like, are you sure you want all of them to come with me? Which was just like Zachary Quinto and, and Seth. And he's like, and he's like, yes, everybody, we need everybody here. So it was like they're going to off them at the end of the night, and they didn't do it. <laughs> like, even he realizes it when he's like, oh, crap, I still have my brown bag. Where... <laughs> yeah, I got I to gotta put this on the secretary's, like, desk here. Um, uh, yes. And, and yeah. the MVP, MVP is Simon Baker, because I love Simon Baker, and this was probably his best work. And and the role he was meant to play was a douchebag stick man, <laughs> stockbroker, uh, executive, and, and he he was perfect for this role. So, and if you haven't seen it, go watch the Guardian. Go find it. I don't know where it's at, but go watch the Guardian. He did brilliant work in that show. It was a great show. It was a great show. Really? It was. Oh, okay, only lasted three seasons. He he played a he played a lawyer that that like got in trouble with the law and he was doing pro bono work for a for like a charity um uh like advocacy cor- uh organization and it, it it's brilliant it's brilliant. All right, Zach, LVP MVP. LVP of this movie is the copy room guy because if you're awake at one in the morning making copies, <laughs> you need a better life. MVP of this movie is alcohol in a paper bag. <laughs> kind of similar to what Terry was talking about. But listen, like, you got to think that Seth drank a lot of alcohol that night. And if I were in my state right now to go through the shit that Seth goes through in this movie, I couldn't handle it. So maybe Seth really is the MVP of this movie. I, I think you have a valid point there, Terry. I said well, LVP. I said he's the LVP. I think, he, I think he might be the MVP. Okay. Well, but, but at the same time, fired, Will though. was out at the same club that he was. Like they were yeah. both. That's why they both yeah. had like eventually at like four a.m. They're like, okay, we need but to eat. Will some they, bro- they both came in brown bagging it. <laughs> then they got yeah th- yeah. Even Will was like like talking to him like. But Will was like ten feet ahead of me. He's like he's like yeah. giving him shit. And, you know like oh yeah no no no. I mean it's because they were both drunk. <laughs> but they also had to get breakfast at like four a.m. And I was curious. Like, about why that is there so many scene? vegetables? Like, why are there yeah, not enough I, eggs? I had a lot plate? of thoughts about the breakfast scene as well, <laughs> and the Tabasco sauce. Apparently, yeah, yeah. Why? Why was he carrying that like on himself? And then why was that such a big deal? Man, that, that is a conspiracy theory. <laughs> because breakfast and eggs. I mean, that's just something you need to have. Right, know. but I mean, it was like a thing. It was like, wait, wait, what are you doing? It's like, oh yeah, here, here's your bottle. <laughs> All right. Quote of the daytime. Todd, go first. Uh, well, I guess I'm quoting the Jeremy Irons character. He says, if you're the first out the door, that's not called panicking. Oh, screw you. And that's God damn it. Oh, whatever. You've done that to me like five times. So. Oh, I thought you were going to give the whole quote. The whole quote was my quote. Okay, go for it. Go for it. Well, it, I didn't even write down the whole quote. It was just the idea of being first, cheating, or being smarter, which oh, I think yeah. is a, a brilliant life philosophy. Like, I think about that quote all the time. 
And obviously, like Jeremy Iron says, we don't cheat. And I'd like to think we were smarter, but honestly, it's all about being first. And I that 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 is that is the brilliant philosophy of this movie. It's even the tagline on the Blu-ray cover, which I wish I had. But uh, yeah, it's, that's the takeaway from this movie: be first, be smarter, or cheat. Being first out the door doesn't mean you're panicking. Makes me think of uh, of the office and the one opening where where Dwight uh, sets off the fire alarm. Oh and, yeah, and does the fire drill. Ryan started the fire. Ta- well, no, Tom not that, not that. About. When no one oh. was paying attention to his safety safety seminars, and so he started a fire and like locked every door out of the office so that no one could get out. And, That's the same yeah. episode, man. Don't you think? That I don't this, think it is. I think or it, it is. maybe it might be. It is. It is. Don't you yeah, think this movie has a little bit more in common with The Office than anyone would like to acknowledge? <laughs> I mean, don't you think Jeremy Irons is, is a little bit Michael Scott? He's got some Michael Scott qualities. I, I think I, that might be taken a little up, far. This Jared, movie's kind no. of set up The Office. Okay, my 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 quote of the day, uh, I think this is kind of the theme of the movie, but to come up with the theme, I had to go to Wolf of Wall Street. And this is yes. an exchange between uh, Leonardo DiCaprio and Matthew McConaughey. And uh, Matthew McConaughey's character says the name of the game, moving the money from the client's pocket to your pocket. And then Jordan Belfort says, but if you make your client's money at the same time, it's advantageous to everyone, right? Correct. And he says, no. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And and that's kind of the theme of margin. You got to get those numbers up, man. Those are rookie numbers. Yeah, those are rookie numbers. I I watched that like, you know, three days ago. (laughs) Of course. I mean, usually you watch the deep dive movie two or three times, but instead you watched Margin Call and then Wolf of Wall Street. We're well, almost no, I mean, eight Wolf years Wall was on Wolf. at like it was like eleven o'clock at night, and I turned it on like maybe a third of the way through, and before I knew it, it was over, and I was like, "Damn it! It's like one o'clock in the morning, and I gotta go to work in like four hours." <laughs> uh, Rob Reiner was in that movie too. My, he was, my and that's all I thought about when you were talking about Rob Reiner earlier. I was like. <laughs> What the guy was watching the Equalizer? <laughs> <laughs> what was well, the name in that movie? Mac the Knife? No, it was <laughs> what? That was Jordan's dad. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. What was his name in that movie? Uh, Jordan's I dad. <laughs> I, don't I don't know. know. I don't know. Well, with that, we're gonna draw this podcast to a close. <laughs> Beautiful. Uh, this has been our most rambling podcast and most tangents of all time, and that's saying something. Anyways, thank you guys so much for listening. Um, make sure you subscribe all over the internet. Uh, subscribe, rate, review. Wherever you find your podcasts. Uh, we'll be back at you next week with another episode. Until then, have fun watching movies. And we'll catch you on the flip side. Despite your crass behavior, I'm glad we were able to do this together.